Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, A Song of Ice and Fire, Episode 91, Jamie 3, in A Feast for Crows. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. We don't tell you where to find us anymore. Absolutely. You have 90 other episodes that you can listen to to figure that out. However... <laughs> If you don't know, we have blogs, there's links in the description, there's Twitters, there's all that jazz. And one of those ways that you can find us is via email. We've got a few of those this week that we want to go over. Yeah, we did get a really, actually a really in-detail email, ooh, that rhymed, from our friend Maddie, who is a good friend, good a patron actually, I think stranger to your patron, watch out, who has sent us a couple questions, a couple really interesting just thoughts that she's having. And she did say she's now a permanent Queen Sansa supporter because of us. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Maddie, for your uh, drunken impulse subscription to our Patreon. (laughs) I know this because Maddie said that she was drunk and also uh, was quite openly so on Twitter. So (laughs) thank you. She was kicking ass. I think I was too that night. So good for her. She also is standing, quote unquote, which is what the kids all say, chapters of whoever we're going through, not necessarily them, the characters, big mood. I agree because I've never cried about Jamie Lannister in my entire life. If you say I have, that's slander or libel. Eliana, you're arrested. So, <laughs> goodbye. Arrested. I digress. Welcome Maddie. to Girl Gone Canon. <laughs> Welcome to Girl Gone. I have nothing better. Maddie wants to comment on the Jamie chapters and also says that they are our best chapters yet, she thinks. Interesting. I'm glad that people think so. I'm surprised. I I've, I, I was really intimidated going into them because I think Jamie is uh, one of the characters that I was really looking forward to getting to. And I, I've said it multiple times that like a huge part in... Uh, what George is trying to convey in A Song of Ice and Fire. So um, I'm going to kick it off with some of the thoughts that Maddie shared with us in her email. One of them is uh, about Maddie speaking as a trans woman and talking about Cersei's internalized self-hatred and how Maddie's reading what might be trans vibes from Cersei. Maddie says, Though Cersei obviously hates the social roles thrust upon her by Western society in general, and Tywin Lannister in particular, I often felt that Cersei's hate and despondency about her gender went deeper and was more internalized than someone like Brienne. Uh, Maddie also then points out how Cersei reacts with hostility every time that it's pointed out that Cersei is a woman, which tracks with gender dysphoria in a way that Maddie points out that Brienne does not. Here we have another thing that Maddie says, Cersei says she has a lot of frustration with being a woman in general, and we see glimpses of this in both her drunken rant to Sansa at the Blackwater and the fear and rage that filled her eyes when Jaime rejects her in his last chapter of A Storm of Swords. I feel like Cersei doesn't take much power from her femininity. Rather, she views it as a burden, and whenever she is reminded of it, she reacts with rage or breaks down in fear, or even suicidal behavior like her plan at the Blackwater. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It feels like Brienne is, she is more dissociated from the concept of uh, the structure of being a woman, right? Everything that a woman does that we see women like Cersei, Catelyn, etc. do in society, and that's what she's very disillusioned with, and that role that kind of is waiting for her, much like the Crips in Winterfell, for example, right? Those stone lords waiting. Uh, and for Cersei, it's it's nothing like that. It's it's all wildfire and 
how she should have had the sword. Yeah, and I think, you know, Brienne obviously is just like, fuck it, I'm going to hold a sword. And I think mm-hmm. that these are good points, especially uh, as I've been reading Brienne and Cersei's chapters alongside Jamie's. And you see that in some of the chapters in between the previous Jamie chapter and this one, how, as Maddie points out, some of this rage that Cersei feels when it's pointed out, whereas Brienne's like, I'm going to just ignore that remark from you, Randall <laughs> Charlie, and I'll- carry on. Also... I felt this was kind of meta because like Cersei at the Blackwater drunkenly rambling to Sansa. I I thought it. Maddie is rambling to us and I love it. This is so good. Maddie always rambled to us. I thought it. I thought it. I'm so (laughs) glad we were on the same page because I was like, aha, just like Maddie as soon as she said in the email Cersei. I'm like, hmm. (laughs) so thank you maddie another thing that maddie talks about again regarding cersei is cersei's use of green and how cersei portrays that image of beauty and courtly power of course uh portraying that good queen towards the beginning but is also very vengeful right cersei dresses in these morning clothes and maddie has teased for us an essay that she may or may not (laughs) be completing uh, and I noticed a line in Circe 2 in A Feast for Crows. Black had never been a happy color on her. With her fair skin, it made her look half a corpse herself. To me, this seems like foreshadowing of Circe's failures to govern, like, or model herself off Tywin. Maybe foreshadowing her death continuing to wield this power. It's an interesting line from Circe because, you know, some people some people want that look, Circe. Mm-hmm. All right? Some people want that high contrast. Cersei's not gothcore. Absolutely not. Actually, you're right. Cersei is not gothcore. Cersei is scarlet core. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that means aesthetic-wise, but it does. Maddie goes on to ask if we had any further thoughts on Cersei's clothing, what it might mean for her art going forward. And I think we'll touch on this in the very first bit of the chapter. So stay tuned for that because unfortunately I was very inspired by this email. And then I made like a spreadsheet and I data filtered it, and I did some percentages about it. Uh, <laughs> you can go look at it, Eliana. It's in our Google Docs. Anyways, it's all about emeralds and rubies on Cersei. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Data, Interesting. data, data, baby. Cersei's into Christmas is what I'm hearing. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think it's a good thought. I There's part of me that's like, yes, we can talk about it a bit now and in these chapters but also there's a lot of Cersei thoughts that I have as I read Jamie's chapters and I'm also Ugh. like I gotta save some I gotta save yes. some for when we get to Cersei so I know I think we'll still have a ton a ton oh, of Cersei there's thoughts. a ton those chapters are a wild ride rereading them right now with this mm-hmm. Jamie stuff alongside like you're saying is just I'm itching to talk about them so me too maybe after maybe after So Maddie did ask one more question that I found really interesting, especially with its increasing presence as far as the King's Landing plot is going in the story, which is about the Faith of the Seven. Yeah, Maddie uh, talks about how Maddie loves the beauty and mystery that's described in the Faith of the Seven and the gender fluidity of the Seven, as we see with Brienne, who can be the mother, the maid, or warrior, as can Jamie or Catelyn or even Ned, and how Seven Gods make a stronger whole. 
which, you know, as, as Maddie points out, is a central tenet of its theology across the story. And on the surface, the religion seems to be, like, false or corrupt, and, enjoy, and Maddie enjoys that. But she's also worried that religion may be cheapened in the Winds of Winter through Endgame, um, especially with the brand rising, and for the Faith of the Seven to end up, you know, kind of being dunked on or even rejected by the masses for the old gods, or maybe even uh, as they turn to R'hllor. So, Maddie then asks, I'm curious as to your thoughts on this, especially Chloe's, as I know mm. she likes Bran and his POV quite a bit. I'm being called on the carpet right now. This is my moment to shine. Yeah. Remember how surprised you were when I was like, Bran! Uh, <laughs> Me? I was never surprised, was I? <laughs> a little bit. I was like, Bran is my second favorite POV, and you were like, what? Oh, yeah, that, that yes. Yeah. A little surprising. But this is actually a pretty legitimate question. I think religion is becoming, like I said, a, a, an increasing force in the story as Daenerys comes closer and as we just met some of the the Red God's followers that want to preach the good word of the Dragon Queen and Stannis, right? Uh, we just explored a lot of the plot with Stannis when we talked about Jon. And I think that however Bran is explored, he probably won't be pushing religion on people I think the North in general, while yes, most are adhering to the old gods, you have people like the Manderleys who have moved and become functioning members of the North, etc. Very welcome. And vice versa in the South, right? The the Black would still worship. I, I wonder the contrary even about the Seven being cheapened. I think we're going to see the push of R'hllor, the pushback for the old gods even, maybe backfire on protagonists, not just Bran, but uh, Danny, John. We've seen the microcosm of Stannis violently proselytizing the free folk to his cause, rewarding them with life in exchange for abandoning their culture. And we're hearing whispers of what a witch at Stannis' side, blood magic, armies. If Daenerys brings that to the realm, or if that's what's brought to the realm in her stead of her coming, do you think maybe the people in the north might be a little wary? The south as well. We're, we're seeing the road the Sparrow and many people of the faith are laying down on, speaking out against abomination, much like I'm sure is going to have some parallels in the Winds of Winter to Fire and Blood, right? With the preachers speaking out during that time against exceptionalism, against the Lannisters. And it's probably going to coincide with Dorne and John Connington's plots, right? If they do get wiped off the map, the Faith of the Seven, I think the best hope for the story is that it reforms kind of a parallel to what's happening with Bran the Builder, right? If that's really the end game. And this all begs the question, though, in the end, that when the lords and the kings aren't burning the small folks' crops, slaughtering and raping their children and wives and husbands and etc. for resources... Like, will they need a faith? Sure, people need faith. It's something that we all, some people believe, some people don't. But when you take all of that away, hmm. I agree with that, especially. I don't think that we'll necessarily see an eradication of the faith of the no, seven. No, no. And this is something that uh, we had talked about in other chapters, and I think we talked about quite heavily when we joined Quinn from now called yes. Quinn's Ideas. I'm so Brilliant. glad you just said this. I was thinking yeah. this about the Melisandre episode exactly. and power. We, yeah, we joined Quinn to discuss Melisandre, and we had a deep discussion about power. And again, now it's called Quinn's Ideas, not Ideas of Ice and Fire, but I'm sure you can still find it at that. And a lot of the religions explore different things, and I 
think that the idea that, you know, R'hllor, yes, you can see a dem- demonstrative, like, power through the fire and, like, the miracles, etc. And then the old gods, we see that maybe there aren't necessarily the old gods as a sort of uh, something where people, as they transcend, whatever, right, uh, the children of the forest and this magic, they are part of that old god, this sort of ancestry mm-hmm. thing that's going on. But the Faith of the Seven is powerful, and I think we cannot forget that the Faith of the Seven might not have power in terms of magic, but it has very strong, not only political power, but the will of the people. We see it come up very strongly within uh, Feast for Crows, and we're going to see it not, I don't think it'll be cheapened in The Winds of Winter. I think it's going mm-hmm. to actually only become stronger as George explores it more. We saw that he's been playing with this idea a lot in Fire and Blood. We saw it come forward, as you said, during the reign of Jaehaerys and being a huge force for the Targaryens to wrestle with uh, when they first came to Westeros and trying to find that sort of balance. It was a huge turning point within the Dance of the Dragons and it will be, I think, in the second dance, especially as Aegon courts the Faith of the Seven and has studied uh, the Faith of the Seven in depth, right? I And I think that's the thing, right? When it comes to faith, like we have a personal exploration of faith mm-hmm. in the face of hardship with Aaron the damp hair. And the thing is, faith isn't necessarily about miracles and seeing seeing is believing right that's the whole point that's why it's faith and granted a lot of those miracles are portrayed in things in in order to inspire faith right but the whole point in many ways as we see with melisandre is devoutness part of that test is there even when you don't uh, have proof and i think that the faith of the seven will continue to persist Mm -hmm. and I think it's just as strong a power when you have that huge political and will of the people. And I think that a broken Westeros in the endgame, whoever it's ruled by, I think it's looking likely that Aegon and Arianne are not going to have a long reign, right? Probably not so long. Might have a little bit of a reign, but might be some wildfire under that city, right? Right? I don't know. I don't know. It's an idea. Anyways, so glossing past that... You have Melisandre's smoke and mirrors, right, which is power, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And we learn from her plot in A Dance of Dragons, like, some of those are just for show. Some of those are to keep the belief. And like you said, like you and I spoke with Quinn from Quinn's Ideas about power in a lot of people believing in something is just as magical as Melisandre's smoke and mirrors. Absolutely as magical. So, I don't know, I think the this is not the way I want it to come out. I was going to say, the best thing that could happen is King's Landing blowing up and the religion reforming. But no, I, I just think like it's going to be a better, eventually a better thing would happen if how the faith operates right now and the corruption and the rot that has seeped into King's Landing specifically, as we see the poor fellows and the stars and swords joining up. I think that rot being kind of uh, out might reform some of these religions in general and bring them back to fundamentals. You know, just like with COVID, all the nature is returning, right? We've seen all Those the were news. hoaxes. Those are not hoaxes. They're all real. I saw the brave little toaster go back to Ikea, okay? <laughs> to nature. Anyway. But you know what I mean? I think, like, it's animalism and catabolism. It's like... 
the build up and the breakdown and the rebuild, uh, your muscles are going to be stronger after you break them down and rebuild them. Just like working out. I don't know. I don't, uh, I just don't see the religions staying how they are. They have to change because Westeros has to change. The people that live in it will have a faith in something or someone. And the something and someones are changing. Yeah. And I mean, of course, it's possible that it disappears, right? Many religions have disappeared. Sure, sure. And Relore, I think Relore would be the most like... Lee, but I don't think it would because it's very popular in the East. But the old gods and Relor have so much in common. We could do this for hours. We should do an episode about this. Yeah, maybe we should. Anyway. Hmm. Huh. Hmm. Anyway, so so Maddie thanks us uh, and has clarified that these were thoughts produced after three glasses of wine. Big mood. <laughs> I'll drink to that. And uh, is looking forward to getting into Jamie in the Riverlands. And that's what we're going to do today. Thank you, Maddie, a.k.a. you can find Maddie on Twitter at Abakazia, uh, and that's spelled A-B-H-A-K-H-A-Z-I-A on Twitter. Yeah, and she is a patron of ours in the Stranger tier, the best horse, in my opinion, which is why I made it the most accessible. And if you all want to follow us on Patreon, we do have a Patreon Patreon.com slash GirlsGoneCanon. This month, we are continuing our free cities content for patrons, $5 and up. Yes, yes. I'm so excited. Eliana, what what are we doing? What city are we doing Yeah, this month? this month, we are doing Mir. And you too can get this episode if you two down three glasses of wine and then make <laughs> a life decision to subscribe to us. At patreon.com slash girls gone gamut. But, you know, until you get that episode first, we gotta do a lightning round. Oh, I'm excited. This lightning round is a bit long. It's been a hot minute since Jamie's last chapter. This chapter is a bit long. I know. The first chapter we missed is Cersei 4. Rulings tiresome, but still someone must do it. Cersei sets up safeguards and schemes to secure her power, and none of them will backfire. Not one. <laughs> not one. The Iron Captain. Not like the Iron Giant. Asha tries to get Victorian to go straight, but they both intend to fight for the Salt Throne. <laughs> you said it. I know. <laughs> I can't believe. I was like, what is this doing in here? <laughs> the Sea Stone Chair. It's from the show that the books are based on. Yeah, that's true. This is the actual original canon. Hashtag canon. The Drowned Man. Aaron oversees the king's moot, but the crow's eye sweeps them all. Brienne 4, ambushed by some of the bloody mummers. Brienne's party suffers a loss. Brienne digs for what they've lost and for her honor. That's a horse. The Queen Maker. Ariane Martell's attempt at scheming is shattered before her with blood staining the sands of Dorne. Arya too. Arya advances to novice and is allowed to enter the open world looking for an NPC named Brusco while wearing her cat disguise outfit. <laughs> Elaine won. Elaine, the other half of Cat. Eh, get it? Catalane. Because Feast is the best book ever. Uh, must hold her poise in front of the Lord's Declarant. Once they leave, she begins to understand the game that's being played. Of Thrones? Ah! Chair. Chair game. 
Hey, I like that episode of Sesame Street. Uh, <laughs> Cersei 5. Observing Marjorie's effects on Tom and Cersei reflects on Maggie the Frog's prophecies and how one by one they've come true. Brienne 5. Dismissed from Tarly's brief service, Brienne, Hyle, and Podrick come across a septon who will bring them to the Quiet Isle, a place of broken men. Samuel 3. Sam's juggling a lot on his plate. <laughs> he takes a sword into the city. And then he's accosted by Bravos. But thankfully for him, an 11-year-old Noah appears to save him. And then he's thrown into a canal. He's saved by someone else now. Jondo, a mate from the Cinnamon Wind. You know, I keep yelling about all those Jamie Sam parallels, and look at that, they're right next to each other. Hmm. 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 Well, that brings us to Jamie 3. Jamie embarks on a friendly journey to revisit his ghosts with a band of men to bring the Queen's justice. He performs justice at River Run, quote, 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 unquote, and a much better, quote, unquote, justice outside of the hall. My favorite justice, truly. Yes, and so the chapter starts off with Cersei commenting to Jamie about sh- how much she hates his beard, and it reminds her of Robert, and I want to set us up here with a line from Cersei 4, uh, which directly actually follows the last Jamie chapter that we did, Jamie 2. She's talking to Tana Merriweather. Tana says, A hundred times I told him no, and he said yes, the other woman told her, until finally I was saying yes as well. He was not the sort of man to be denied. I know the sort the queen said with a wry smile. Has your grace ever known a man like that, I wonder? Robert, she lied, thinking of Jamie. Hmm. <sighs> Eyebrows raised. I mean, also, not wrong. I mean, like, that, that was the point. And it's something we've discussed in previous episodes, and that's mm-hmm. going to come back a little in this chapter, but we'll get there. Especially right now, thinking of Jamie. And uh, that... Reminds me of uh, when she says to Marjorie, when Marjorie's like, oh, Robert won tourneys? And she's like, yes, very many. Goodbye. I wasn't thinking about my brother who I fucked. I think that was like either in this chapter or the one it's right after It's this or the it. one after. Yeah, I think yeah. it's five. I think it's five. It's in one of the uh, two in this lightning round. You know, Cersei's costumery here, her dresses are so fabulous, darling. They're like Diana and Animal Crossing. No, just kidding. Cersei looks so fabulous. She's no longer in her morning clothes. So she's like happy, right? She's like, I hate morning clothes. Jade green gown, silver mirish lace, a pigeon egg sized emerald on her neck. And you know, we really haven't done fashion hour in a long time. So why not break it down for a little bit? You know, like sit back, break it down. This is where I, I want to address a lot of what Maddie was talking about, actually, in our emails and tweets of note, as she so called them. She's very astute. Jules are very much seen as woman's armor in this book. Uh, We see Cersei with her very own Rhaegar's rubies and these huge emeralds. And my god, I don't know if maybe, like, the Lannisters just have a really good investment in an emerald. Like, mine? I don't know. Whatever. I didn't look up how emeralds... I don't know how the sausage is made, Eliana. But Cersei is very much replicating Tywin, by adding all of these jewels, because jewels mean wealth, wealth means power. His wares are so exemplary of the extraness of costuming in these pages, and not only in his burial, but in life, right? Like at the end of Blackwater, where Sansa sees him, and she says she never had seen such armor. 
burnished red steel inlaid with golden scrollwork and ornamentation. His rondels were sunbursts. The roaring lion that crowned his helm had ruby eyes, a lioness on each shoulder, fastened a cloth of gold cloak so long and heavy it draped the hindquarters of his charger. Even the horse's armor was gilded, his barding's shimmering crimson silk emblazoned with the Lion of Lannister. If we take it to when Tyrion asks him to help him outfit all of the clan with swords from the Vale, right? He makes sure there's a ruby on each sword and says, if it's a garnet, I'll know. You know, not that cheap shit. We learn the origin of Ilan Payne in this chapter and how he dared to say that Tywin was more powerful than the king and what happened to Ilan Payne because of it. We leave Cersei desperately trying to hold on to power in King's Landing with Joffrey dead, Tywin dead, a sweeping power vacuum, and Maddie's question on further thoughts for Cersei's clothing really made me want to dig in today, speaking of the spreadsheet I mentioned. (laughs) And I learned a lot. There are 28 mentions of the word emerald in the books, and precisely 15 of them are related to Cersei. There are 100 ruby mentions. Not going to go through it much today, but we'll get there. Cersei wears emeralds in these events in the story. Pre-Game of Thrones, the tourney where the dagger passed hands, her emerald pendant also passed hands in a bet. A Game of Thrones Winterfell feast, she wears a jeweled tiara. Eddard's execution, she wears a jade green dress with a pigeon egg ring that's an emerald. In A Clash of Kings at the Blackwater, she's wearing an all-white innocent dress Snowy, like the Kingsguard armor, with a diamond and emerald necklace roped around her neck. In the Riot of King's Landing, she's also wearing an emerald necklace. In the Revenge Against Tyrion's Mistress, quote-unquote, Aliaya, uh, she wears a woven belt of emeralds studded with them, and a low-cut green velvet dress. In A Feast for Crows, holding court the morning after telling Marjorie of the fate of Loras at Dragonstone when Orion Waters returns. She wears a jeweled emerald crown that she had requested Dorcas bring for her while speaking to Tyena. And in A Feast for Crows, visiting Marjorie and being imprisoned by the Faith, she wears a green silk gown with emeralds. Out of the 105 mentions of rubies in the story, Cersei wears rubies only in mourning, specifically the following events with the same dress both times. A Game of Thrones when manipulating Sansa to write the letter to her family, black silk morning gown, hundred rubies on the bodice, and then during period sex in a storm of swords on the altar over Joffrey's body. Same morning gown, same rubies. Eliana and I have talked before about the kind of similarity to Rhaegar, right, in those rubies. It's like Rhaegar's rubies right up on that bodice. And we talked about wealth and jewels meaning power and the rubies feel representative of the Targaryens, in a way, with Rhaegar's rubies and the rubies in Aegon's crown. We even see some of the symbolism through Daenerys and Illyrio's machinations with young Griff through Jon Khan's point of view as well. Illyrio gifts young Griff a red-on-black ruby necklace, signifying kind of that Blackfire connection. It feels like the rubies are kind of reserved for royalty, Right? It reminds me of like Mean Girls when Gretchen Wieners explains she's not allowed to wear hoop earrings anymore because they were Regina's thing. Yeah, but also it, it feels like it represents the Targaryens' enriched history. While some were ill-suited to the throne, some did make enormous progress for a nation that before was war-torn, not just free of Targaryen rule. And it took work for that to happen. A lot of that work was against some of the natural environments like incest and supernatural pet stuff. Um, 
Cersei detests, you know, natural, yeah. (laughs) Normal stuff. Everyday king shit, okay? Everyday everyday how to train your dragon. (laughs) Absolutely. Astrid as hell. Cersei hates wearing the morning dresses, as Maddie noted, and A Feast for Crows, Cersei too, when she says it's bad enough to wear a morning gown. That's not the first time that she's hated it. She talks about it in A Feast for Crows 1 as well, where she says, At least I will not be expected to don mourning for Tyrion. I shall dress in crimson silk and cloth of gold for that, and wear rubies in my hair. Right now, Cersei kind of wears these rubies as her own armor, as a penance, as work, that it's work she must have the small folk see her mourn, she thinks. It's work to smile at lords. This is her, her lord's face. She puts on, right? To be fair, funerals are definitely a lot of work. And Cersei sees rubies as a duty, like how Jamie dons his Kingsguard armor. It's a costume for her, though. In the A Dance with Dragons epilogue, we get this line that really ties into a lot of what Maddie spoke about regarding dysphoria and resenting being in this useless shell of a body for Cersei. And it's a line in the epilogue with Kevin. No queen could expect to rule again after that, the walk of shame. In gold and silk and emeralds, Cersei had been a queen, the next thing to a goddess. Naked, she was only a human, an aging woman with stretch marks on her belly and teats that had begun to sag as the shrews in the crowds had been glad to point out to their husbands and lovers. So looking at that and looking at the future for Cersei, I really expect that we're going to see her start to don more ruby and black and crimson. She has two kids that still have to die if y'all remember them. And I think that she's going to distance herself from wearing emerald for a few reasons. It feels like shedding a skin, right? A phoenix reborn from the ashes. It turns out when you parade a woman naked around town to humble her, it probably won't humble her. It might enrage her, especially one that's been dealing with misogyny, whether it's her own internalization or those uh, who deal with her and consider it all her life. And we know she's, um, how do I put this lately, like a like a lion, right? <laughs> when she's prideful? mad. She, yeah, very prideful. She just like reaches out with her big old claw and fucks your shit up. Uh, with Dornish influence coming to court, I can't imagine that Nymeria Sand is not going to encourage Cersei to be the worst Cersei she can be. The Tyrells have grown their emerald vines across the shitty city of King's Landing. And this is basically Cersei what we think is her lowest, but we know that it's not humbling her. She's about to get right back on that one-way train to wreck everything and leave the doors open for Arianne and Aegon to take the silver screen. And as Cersei says above, she can't wait for her vengeance so she can don crimson and rubies. She dreams of herself above them all. She preferred emeralds, the first four to five books, but it's time for her storm to finally match. It's time for a storm to match her rage. You know what I mean? Lannister Crimson, baby. I think she's going all out. I think we'll see Cersei decked out in some rubies and we'll see. We'll see. I think we'll see her in that for sure a lot more. Um, I also think she just kind of wore emeralds because they brought out her eyes. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's another thing. It, it, it plays the queen. Wearing emeralds mm-hmm. for her is a much more demure choice than wearing rubies, right? Wearing rubies is a little uh, out there. It's a little loud. And wearing emeralds is accepted and expected even for her as a queen. She should be beautiful. She should be fancy. She should be quiet. She should be docile. 
Yeah, there's a part of me that as uh, you were talking about this and thinking about emeralds and that color green, uh, first of <laughs> all, it's very opposite. It, it's opposite on the color wheel to red, but there's also an the aspect greens. of CRC that's uh, very... The greens, yes, of course. True, true, from the rest of the the book series. But Cersei's very envious mm-hmm. and jealous of others, their power, uh, attention that they get, um, and especially of the privileges that have been afforded to men within Westeros. But that, I think, I, I kind of want to save that for discussing in Cersei. Cersei's chapters, yeah. yes. But I will say, you know, thank you for this in-depth discussion on emeralds. Did you know it is the birthstone for this month that we are in, May? In May! Mere May! Did you know Cersei literally has almost exactly 50% of the emerald mentions in the entire book, including eye color? She's hoarding it. <laughs> in her eyes. It's so Lannister, hoarding all the wealth. Yes. But Jamie, you know, coming back to away from Cersei's dress and to Jamie's beard, counters her insults, says that his beard is gold, it's not black, unlike Robert's beard, and then she plucks a gray hair out and says, silver. <sighs> Implying that he's old, but also I thought Cersei was into silver-haired guys. Who knows what she's into? It depends That's on the true. day. Good for her. She calls Jamie though a crippled, bloodless ghost, and says that she prefers him in crimson and gold. And he thinks now he would prefer her with golden light on her, water beaded on her skin. Then he remembers though that she's fucking other people first, and with this ghost-like imagery of Jamie, I kind of wonder what this chapter would have been like, close to maybe the Ghosts of Winterfell, had they all been one book. I don't know. Yeah, Throw I, I can see that. I do like it being next to Samuel, though. Like, I, I'm yeah. glad we don't know, I guess. I, I I love reading this as one piece, as both books together. It makes A Dance with Dragons very palatable, in my opinion. It's not that it's a bad book. I'm not saying that. It's just sometimes it can get a little monotonous. I, I think that cutting it with the feast stuff really creates this beautiful build and it gets you so excited. But I could see it being by the ghost of Winterfell, especially because there's a lot about Jamie's identity in this chapter as mm-hmm. we move into it. And Jamie with Cersei right now, he he begs her, relieve me of my duty. You can control my razor all you want. Ooh, okay. And he smells mulling spices on her breath from the wine she's been drinking. Interesting that he notes it. I think that's a pretty bolded moment for him, like, ugh. She reminds him, though, that he is sworn to obey. He corrects her and says, I'm sworn to protect Tommen, and they continue to fight. He asks, why did you name Davin Lannister Warden of the West if you can't trust him? And then he stares out behind her at the burnt tower of the hand. I thought you were going to say stares out behind her into the camera. <laughs> oh my god, also that. She asks if he's a chicken, but he reminds her he vowed never to take arms against the Starks or the Tullys again. She calls it a drunken promise that was made at sword point. Words that, once upon a time, Jamie Lannister described it as too, you know, but he argues against it. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting that it comes up again in this way in Jamie's chapters. It's one of those lines that's meant to signal, of course, a change in Jamie's outlook. It's one of the reasons readers interpret uh, this big change and can and feel this big change in Jamie's character. We've heard this like vow before, of course, right? And we saw before that Jamie was like, eh, yeah, I don't know, I kind of made that in. As as Cersei says, he's like, oh, I was at sword point, I don't know. And I'm gonna be real. 
It's actually a pretty hard vow to keep. Like, who do the whole fucking kingdoms at war? How are you gonna know if like so and so's for the Tullys or for the Starks? But I guess technically it means just not trying to like actively go against either the Starks or the Tullys. Not not like oh no, random person mm-hmm. who's for them. Anyway. But I mean for him to say it here and to say it to Cersei and seem like he's standing by it in earnest, it, it's quite different from before, yeah. Jamie. And it's kind of a rock and a hard place, right? Because keeping that vow with Cersei saying, hey, can you go fuck Brendan Tully up? Mm. <laughs> it's I thought you were going to end with, not end with the up. And I was like, Jamie's like, yes. He's like, I my dream since age nine. You know, I had a poster of Justin Timberlake and his ramen hair, an insane poster <laughs> on my wall. And I kissed it every day oh, for at least two months with a different lipstick. Eliana. And <laughs> I digress. Jamie Lannister had a poster of Brendan Tully that Cersei drew for him on the wall, and it's like a stick figure with like some red scribbled on the face. That's true. Cersei did used to draw things. Yeah, her and Rhaegar <laughs> yeah. on the dragon. Who's that? Dragons are dead, idiot. Alessandra <laughs> I mean, their hair's similar. So... Jamie asks, how is he supposed to defend Tommen without being there? And she tells him, defeat his enemies by chaining and killing Brendan Tully and setting Harrenhal to rights. She's had no ravens in return to the ones that she sent to Harrenhal, which Jamie is like, probably because Gregor's idiot men are cruel, stupid, and hungry, likely, so they probably cooked your ravens up and ate them, threw the letter out for kindling. Yeah, and I... The context for this being that in one of Cersei's chapters preceding this one, she's heard word that Manderly uh, has kept his promise and he beheaded Davos and Cersei's trying <laughs> to get Manderly's son and send that son back to him as a reward, which on reread we know is meant to show us the difference uh, in Jamie and Cersei's perceptions of reality and loyalty and very much to show us that Cersei's mishandling ruling, as everyone's telling her, like, Cersei, chill. Absolutely. She knows also that, like, she knows all of this information. And she says, that's why I'm sending you. You're going to go. Osmond Kettleblack is going to rule the King's Garden. You're stead. And, of course, he's immediately like, she's been fucking the Lancel and the Kettleblacks and Moonboy for all I know in his head, which repeats constantly throughout this arc. He argues it's not her choice. Loras will hold the command instead while he's gone, but Cersei takes that as a slight, like she does most things, because it's putting the Tyrells in power, even though the only two worthwhile Kingsguard were sent to Dorne, Swan and Oakheart. Cersei says she needed Swan and Dorne because the Dornish men can't be trusted, but at the same time, didn't Cersei just threaten to invite a Dornish master at arms to the capital? Yeah, yeah, she did. She did. Uh, she keeping consistent she just wants people that she feels is like team Cersei as opposed to team the realm whoever promises they'll get shit done for her you know if it's uh cheaper than I don't know a shake of a salt shaker yeah she's not necessarily concerned if like they really really follow through she she kind of is the appearance of them falling through anyway we get this line this this great passage of between Cersei and Jamie. Sir Loras is thrice the man Sir Osmond is. Your notions of manhood have changed somewhat, brother. Jamie felt his anger rising. 
True, Loris does not leer at your teats the way Sir Osmond does, but I hardly think. Think about this. Cersei slapped his face. Good job. Jamie made no attempt to block the blow. I see I need a thicker beard to cushion me against my queen's caresses. He wanted to rip her gown off and turn her blows to kisses. He'd done it before, back when he had two good hands. The queen's eyes were green ice. You had best go, sir. Lancel, Osmond Kettleblack, and Moonboy. Are you deaf as well as maimed? You'll find the door behind you, sir. As you command. That line, uh, your notions of manhood have changed somewhat. Yes. Yes. True. Big mood. Yes, good call. Yeah, there's a lot of ways in which that is. One of which uh, we said we would come back to that quote up at the top of the chapter. It's uh, rearing its head a bit here with that big yikes of uh, wanting to rip her gown off, turn her blows to kisses. Uh, a bit of this exchange that reminds me of, we had talked about that sonnet before, one of Shakespeare's sonnets uh, regarding the Dark Lady and uh, all those mm. kind of backhanded compliments, right? And I th- I, the Queen's Crosses kind of gives me that vibe, but I mean, like, this is not... So it, it kind of uh, reinforces a lot of things that we've been saying about Jamie and Cersei's sexual relationship in the past few chapters and, uh, and how it's portrayed, uh, how consensual or non-consensual, depending on what it is, it is. Uh, but, you know, as, as we were saying about Jamie's notions of manhood having changed, I think, you know, Jamie, he's defending Loras, Cersei makes those jabs. And I, there's a part of me that's like wondering, like, going on a tangent for a bit, is this how J.R. Mormont felt when he was, like, talking to Alistair Thorne and all of them when he told everyone, you know what, I'm gonna take Jon Snow as my steward. And everyone was like, what? Jon Snow? <laughs> like, this is so clearly Jamie showing favoritism and grooming Loras for command one day. Of course, because he sees himself in Loras very much and he's trying to be one of his dads. And congratulations, Loras, you were getting the Jon Snow treatment. Oh my god, you're adopted, Loras. Yes. Congrats. Congratulations, Loras, you have multiple dads now. But, like, the other Kingsguard aren't gonna take it well, right? Like, we saw the Night's Watch how well it goes when you're like, hello, yes, this 17-year-old boy who has never seen battle. At least Jon Snow had seen battle. I think Cersei has a misconception he's a green boy. He's not, um... Lord Tyrell, congrats! You're in charge of all these much older men? Like, they're already like, yeah, we follow a boy king. Like, Sir Jamie's not going to get in their best graces uh, by putting Loris in charge, even if he believes in Loris's ability. But I, I do think it's true, right? Coming back to that, Jamie's ideas of manhood and or honor have changed in general. Like, how could it not, right? Like, the whole thing that he measured his manhood by this whole time, like, he's failing by that metric system. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I need a new metric system for what manhood is absolutely he leaves knowing he may have swayed her if he was softer in his approach but at the same time he's like ah fuck this city fuck her shitty council i'm out of here that's how you know they broke they're like in the middle of a break i don't care what you think anymore we're gonna just fight (laughs) yeah and okay so her shitty court is not actually named that it's being called the smallest council actually so kind of worse kind of actually worse uh, by uh, Adam Marbrand has told him this, and Kyburn, of course, is hanging around, and he warns Cersei against his secrets, and she told him, look, Jamie, we all have our secrets, except Jamie kind of knows her secrets. I mean, he mostly believes her secrets, 
And he has some of his secrets himself, but he won't admit it to himself, you know? Yeah, he won't. He's still he's still trying to get there and reconcile his vision of Cersei with Cersei. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cersei. The retinue to the Riverlands has 40 knights and squires, half-Westermen, sworn to House Lannister. We have Sir Dermot of the Rainwood, who's carrying Tom and Sandard, Red Ron at Connington, holding the Kingsguard banner, and then a page, not a page, but last name page, P-A-E-G-E. We got a Piper, we got a Peckledon, and they would all share the squiring honors for Jamie. Jamie's like, how the fuck did I get three squires? <laughs> what is this? What am I, a daycare? Anyways... Jamie remembers this line from a former mentor. Keep friends at your back and foes where you can see them. Sumner Craycall had once counseled him. Or had that been father? It's funny that he thinks this because in the last chapter, Jamie 2, he pleads with Cersei about friends and foes. He says, Cersei, listen to yourself. You're seeing dwarves in every shadow and making foes of friends. Uncle Kevin is not your enemy. I am not your enemy. Uh, I think the echoes here of him thinking about friends and foes, it it feels a lot like getting back on the horse, right? Like, how do I politics? Yeah. And he's just trying to remember, like, ah, this is what I should be doing. But who said this? Was it Sumner? Was it my father? Yeah. And it's hard, right, to tell who are your friends and foes, especially now as a ruler. Cersei's learning in... Who knows how well she's taking that lesson, right? But it, even Stannis Baratheon, right, struggled with this. Didn't you see something like friends and foes all around me? Something like that. Yes. Yes. I know it because I have a San Rixian shirt. <laughs> Jamie has two horses awaiting him. He's got a palfrey, which is a, a blood bay, and his destrier, a magnificent gray stallion. Jamie doesn't name his horses since too many of them die in battle, and it makes him, like, super sad. Big mood. Hmm. The Piper Boy names the horses Honor and Glory, and Jamie laughs, and he's like, you know what, fine, whatever, we can have some nice things. <laughs> Glory wears the trappings of Lannister Crimson, and Honor is wearing Kingsguard White. Uh, it's so perfect, because this kind of ties back to that beginning of the chapter, with some fashion hour for Jamie. Cersei tells him she prefers him in Crimson, and then you kind of have that idea of Brienne, right? Full-on Honor, the angel on his shoulder. She probably prefers him in white, since he, you know, was desecrating the name of the Kingsguard in her eyes. But what if Jamie, like Cersei got to so many times, wants to be rid of his identity? What if he just wants to don a traveler's cloak? How come Jamie doesn't get to go exploring like Arya and be no one? Uh, and to bring our analysis of John into this, Kingsguard honor is supposed heavy emphasis, supposed, to be similar to the Night's Watch in protecting the king and its kingdom, right, as knights. John I in A Game of Thrones has this line from Benjen, The Night's Watch is a sworn brotherhood. We have no families. None of us will ever father sons. Our wife is duty. Our mistress is honor. And bringing up this idea of honor the horse, which I'm sure we'll be talking about for chapters to come, not just today, in depth. Aemon kind of fits here as well. You all might remember when we covered this with Joe Magician in a John chapter. I wonder if Jamie can fit into this at all. What's honor compared to a woman's love? What's duty against the feel of a newborn son in your arms or the memory of a brother's smile? Winds and words, winds and words were only human and the gods have fashioned us for love. That's our great glory and our great tragedy. I think 
talking about honor and glory in those terms is also very interesting because it's always separated in this story. It's always two things. And for Jamie, those are two very important things for the man who didn't get to father his own children. The man that the woman that he loves won't give him healthy love and he can't give her healthy love. This is the great tragedy that Eamon speaks about. Yeah, and then he's choosing between those. And Brienne herself is starting to go through a journey as we're seeing in those chapters of questioning, like, what is honor, right? And besides a horse. And (laughs) her idea of honor is very wrapped up in Jamie as she thinks of him making her a member of a Kingsguard with the rainbow cloak. She dreams of it, and she dream. She thinks of all the ways in which she's starting to fail as a knight, even though she's never been knighted. So you're kind of scot free, but whatever, Brienne, and how she's not living up to a lot of these O's and therefore being dishonorable. So it's interesting to see those, how how he sort of symbolizes that for her, and the different embodiments of honor i do want to say you know as as you said like why can't jamie wear a traveler's cloak i will say that jamie did try he yeah. tried to don the don the traveler's cloak he shaved his head grew a beard but apparently everyone was like no you're still too hot we know who you are <laughs> and he was still very recognizable like that literally happened they were like nope still Truly. still super hot sorry Truly. everyone westeros dudes are just easy they get focused on the boobies which yeah. i would too honestly i'd be focused even malnourished, they were all like, oh, interesting. It's like, Cersei, she gets away with it. Yeah, she can get away with being a maid. That's true. They're like, she's a hot broad wearing a cloak. Yeah, Jamie, <laughs> you know, they just had to, they took in all of him all at once. Anyways, so, back to the story. One of Jamie's other squires, Jasmine Packledon, I love Pack, is skinny with greasy brown hair and soft peach fuzz on his cheeks. He wears the Lannister Crimson Cloak, but is also wearing a surcoat of his own house, House Peckledin, 10 purple mullets on a yellow field. You're not going (laughs) to tell me these are different mullets. Nope, because I didn't look it up, and I know they're a different mullet, and I know if I saw them, I'd know, but I'd rather think about, like, the Joe Dirt wig. Yep, yep, yep. Yep. He asks if Jamie wants his new hand, and Kenos of Case is like, yes, wear it, Jamie. Give the small folks something to remember and think on. But Jamie's like, I think not. He thinks it would be a golden lie of who he is as a person and who he is as a cripple. He calls for Illin Payne to ride alongside him. Illin wears no heraldry, a blank boiled leather slate with rusted, busted chainmail. He could pass for death himself. So throughout this chapter, I've realized I'm an ill and pain apologist slash stand now. Oh my god. Uh, <laughs> but first, I want to talk about the language that's used to describe ill and pain's shield here. Uh, it's called so hacked and battered, it was hard to say what color paint might once have covered it. We know from a lot of the other chapters, including Brienne's, right, that the shield kind of says something about the character holding it in. To an extent, I think that's what we get in this, especially as we learn these flashbacks about ill and pain and how he came to be this way. He's been through a lot, and he's been subjected to a lot, and I think it's the whole idea of it's hard to see what color paint or has to do with, like, who he stands for, like, or feels loyalty towards. It's really murky for everyone. And you also have this line, uh, this is not important, of Jamie telling Ilan Payne, you'll ride beside me, and I'm just saying, it has big Mushu telling Cricky, ooh, very nice, you can sit by me, vibes, and he sets Cricky down on the back of the horse. 
And it's kind of nice that uh, he gets kind of a companion, a male companion, since we haven't seen that. I mean, of course, Illin can't speak, so it doesn't really do much character development-wise, but I like to get this insider look on your favorite character. Mushu's, on a, Mushu's uh, on a redemption arc. Cersei hadn't put up a fight in Jamie's requests for the men he wanted on this journey. She gave him Adam Marbrand easily and Illin Payne as well. Adam Marbrand was his boyhood BFF. Illin Payne, of course, a Lannister man at origin, as we remember as the reader. Payne was boasting Tywin was the real king. Eris takes his tongue out for it. Jamie commands the gates to be opened and Strongbore repeats his call louder with a lord's voice. When the Tyrells had left, drums, fiddles, and cheering people lined the street. None of that happens today. Sex workers call out, meat men, and sparrows are business as usual around them. They like the smell of roses, but have no love for lions, Jamie observed. My sister would be wise to take note of that. Sir Ellen made no reply. The perfect companion for a long ride. I'll enjoy his conversation. Interesting. You know, rereading these Jamie chapters... I have this pet theory I'm working on that everything Jamie thinks about Cersei along these lines, like Cersei should do this, she will directly do the opposite of <laughs> as we move forward in the plot and they will help lead to her doom. That's what I think is going to happen. So like right here, my sister would be wise to take note that they like the roses. Cersei going to fucking ruin the roses life next book. Yeah. Yeah. It it's all being kind of seated, mm-hmm. and all this, but for sure there are some fun and interesting moments though between Jamie and Ilan Payne in in this chapter and the next ones. Especially I think because Brienne's chapters right, they have her traveling with another Payne, Podrick, who is very different and much less silent than Ilan Payne. Very, very opinionated, smart young boy, learning to be confident. It's hard. I didn't actually notice that. That's a really good catch. Like, duh. Both have their own pain in the ass. Oh, wow. (laughs) Both have their emotional baggage. Most of Jamie's men are already assembled outside of the gates. We got Marbrand, Stefan Swift, and his baggage train. (laughs) Not emotional. Bonifer the Good and his Holy Hundred. Sarsfield's archers, Maester Julian and his ravens. Flemont Brax and his 200 horses. There are fewer than a thousand of them in total, and hopefully he's like, it shouldn't take that many men. We don't want to like show up rolling too deep, right? There's already Lannister armies there and Frey armies as well, and the last correspondence they received from River Run was that the besiegers were unable to stay fed. The Blackfish had scoured the land before retiring within the walls of the castle, but the land itself was sacked, burnt, and no longer fertile as war has gone through it. Now Jamie's come and he's got to finish the work that Amory Larchay and the Mountain started. They're so good at doing uh, things. Yikes. Not good to have to end their work. Can't no. be that clean. No. Uh, <laughs> that's like Game of Thrones after season five having to finish. Uh, Jamie sends Marbrand and Co. to go after scout ahead four. because he doesn't want to get whispering wooded again and it's not sexy the wood net is not sexy i thought there was an interesting note here how adam seemed to be relieved to be out of the city watch in his gold clothes and into his own house colors which were smoke gray and on a horse he's free now there wasn't much more than that i don't know thought it was an interesting note that jamie thinks jamie had commanded no man leave the column without his knowing as he knows young lords would be trampling crops, scaring the animals, playing a field 
in their horses, and from the outside of the Riverlands, things are looking luscious. Animals, oats, barley, looking sexy, looking green. But Jamie knows that as they enter, not so much. As he rides next to Illyn, he feels content, almost peaceful. The sun's at his back, and his squire, little Lou Piper, brings him some blackberries. Very cute. It's very sweet. This is a very cute moment. And he tells him, go share with everyone else, like Illyn Payne and the other squires. He begins to ruminate on Illyn Payne as Lou Piper goes off, and how Illyn's place as headsman was a gift from Robert to Tywin, to compensate Illyn for his tongue as well. Illyn had been happy, quote-unquote, to join Jamie, who gave him the choice-ish to come. Yeah, I, I'm always kind of confused about this. You know, I'm like, the choice between what? This and staying as a headsman, where Illyn had sort of been confined and forced to be in for many years. And like, we don't truly know how Illyn Payne feels, which is why I so badly wanted Illyn Payne prologue or epilogue. George, give me this. But... It is interesting how, you know, these Lannister boys, right, Jamie and Tyrion, perceive generosity when it comes to choices, because it reminds me of Tyrion sort of patting himself on the back in A, a Storm of Swords. Like, the choice that Jamie gave Illyn is about as much of a choice as Tyrion was like, Sansa, which Lannister, the family that you hate, who killed your family, do you want to marry, me or Lancel? And, like, Illyn may not be disloyal, Though the text kind of seems to be warning us between this and the shield that, like, maybe he's not, like, 100% sold on the house Lannister cause. But, I don't know, perhaps he wants something else. Maybe it's not a Lannister, maybe it is. I don't know. But. Yeah, I don't know. Well, maybe. Maybe. Jamie had gone to his room. I'm like, Eliana, go off about your prologue wishes that won't happen. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah. He's too main character. You know what? Not main, but I mean, like, he's too prominent. He's not more prominent than Kevin. Kevin was quite prominent, and he got an epilogue. Yeah. I don't know. I love the idea. I just really think it's probably Forley Prester at this point. I just want nice things. I know. I know. But we can't have nice things, and Jamie can't either. And Illyn Payne really can't, apparently, because Jamie goes to his room, which is located at the end of Trader's Walk, and... It kind of looks like a 23-year-old boy who plays nothing but Xbox and pees into pop bottles, right? Like, looks like Literal, his kind like, of room. Literally. Literally. describes it like that. Chair like, imagine everywhere. that plus COVID. You know what I mean? Like, oh mm, uh, Illyn can't read or write. His position as headsman was slightly split across the other jailers until the most recent made the mistake of conspiring to put Stannis on the throne, of course, and join the Antler Men, which we all know how that went for him. Rediford Longwaters became Illyn's better half and brought Jamie up to the room that stank of rotten food, vermin, and piss. Broken wine bottles everywhere. The only beautiful thing in the room, a gleaming steel sword next to his whetstone. Okay, so this chapter almost feels like it has a lot of ghosts of Jamie's present, future, past going on. Mm. Uh, Illyn is one of them, kind of this idea of nega Jamie in the Kingsguard 20 years down the line if he had stayed under Cersei's rule, confined to his tower most days when he's not protecting whoever's ruling-ish. Rotten food, vermin, piss, broken wine glasses, broken, crippled, no longer a man with something to live for, depressed because of his sword hand, 
Uh, A Feast for Crows is really busting out this whole broken man thematic, right, as we speed along, specifically with Brienne encountering her broken men recently, and the empathy we as readers are told is important as we consider the construction of this chapter and of this whole book with these men, these females, these children that we encounter in war. Jamie next thinks that the man cares for naught but killing, as Sir Illyn emerged from a bedchamber that reeked of overflowing chamber pots. Just like what we hear from Sandor in Sansa's plot, killing is the sweetest thing there is. And this is all men who have been prisoners and mindless drones have been sold and bought to do. To kill, to hack, to have. This is the only thing they are worth. This is how they weigh their worth. Yeah, you used this word earlier, and I think it's very much what's going on in Illyn's chambers. It just screams to me of, like, depression Mm -hmm. and, like... Is it that killing's all there is to worth, or like the only thing that he has? Mm. Maybe it's the only thing that he feels right. It's it's the one purpose that he has here, and it's interesting to read this and take that long, hard look at him. Uh, and here's where you know you find out, wow, Eliana, what happened to you? How did you become an ill and pain apologist? Because in a way, <laughs> like yeah, sure, right. He's had great job security and a place to actually live. He's had food drink the past few years all that mm-hmm. he could just probably enough. mostly want yeah it's just enough but it's not a life right like the text points out that it, right here that he wasn't fit to be head of the dungeons which is kind of like part of the job duties apparently of being the king's justice uh, but he couldn't keep track of the list and the reason he couldn't do that is I mean he was unqualified for this this specific job because Not only is he illiterate, he cannot dictate to the people who work for him literally because he's had his tongue cut out. And like everyone just sort of projects this idea of death onto Ilan Payne because of his job. And also because Ilan Payne can't speak for himself to be like, I'm a person. But it seems like, you know, he had quite the sense of humor. That's part of how he, I guess, lost his tongue and it was taken from him. And, like, I mean, of course this is Ilan Payne's life. Of course he lives in this squalor. Like, he's really lonely. He he can't connect with people. He has no means Literally. to communicate his thoughts. Yeah. With anyone else around him and many are too scared to talk to him. It's not like someone made, like, fucking American Sign Language or any sign language mm-hmm. to communicate with him. He cannot read or write. He can't even, like, just, like, write things to people. He's just stuck in his head with his own thoughts. And I think throughout these chapters, we're going to see there's, like, definitely a weird power imbalance between Jamie and Illyn. And, I mean, Illyn knows why he's here, but in a way, I think there's sort of a charm to their interactions. You know, not to talk of Jamie's generosity too much in here, because there's obviously a pragmatism in choosing Illyn as his companion versus literally anyone else. But, I mean, this is probably the most genuine human interaction Illyn Payne's had with anyone, like, in a while. And it also speaks to a lot of the turn we're going to see in Jamie's story, especially after with his interactions with Brienne, and one in sort where he sort of swaps roles, right, with Tyrion. Because Tyrion had once fancied himself, framed himself as this champion of bastards, cripples, and broken things. That's the that's the famous line. Uh, but as Jamie starts to come to grips with no longer having his hand, no longer living up to Westerosi standards of manhood, he's the one who's been making connections with these sort of societal outcasts. It starts off with Brienne, but here he is bonding and taking time, hanging out with Ilan Payne. We're going to see it later on uh, as he shows compassion 
towards Pia and defends her versus Tyrion, who, mired in all of this self-hate, has started rejecting all of these societal outcasts in the same way that society's rejected him and acting out against them. Yeah, and it wasn't hard for Jamie to get Payne to agree. Again, it's not like he could verbally disagree besides clacking. He agreed to come win the Riverlands back with Jamie, and now here they are. They're making camp right now, as we read, beneath the Hayford's hillside castle. Jamie set the sentries, even though things seem safe, because things always seem safe when bad things happen. He's then invited to sup with the castellan of Hayford and takes Illyn, Marbrand, Boniface Hasty, Red Roncon. I feel like everyone should call him that. Red I do Roncon. Too. I was like Red Roncon. RRC, Red Roncon. Strongbor. I, oh. I don't actually think that anyone should call Red Roncon, just oh. putting that out there. Oh. I, I bought into it. Why would you tease me <laughs> like that? I was sold. I mean, why would you call him? Would would you? I wouldn't. <laughs> Strongbor, a handful of other knights and lordlings are there, and he says, All right, Peck, fetch my fucking golden hand. It's lifelike, inlaid with mother of pearl nails, which sounds really creepy, formed to be able to hold a goblet. Jamie thinks, I cannot fight, but I can drink. Jamie reflected as the lad was tightening the straps that bound it to his stump. Men shall name you Golden Hand from this day forth, my lord, the armorer had assured him the first time he'd fitted it onto Jamie's wrist. He was wrong. I shall be the Kingslayer till I die. The first thought of a Golden Hand forever will make me and probably others think of King Midas. Or Aladdin, shit. Uh, and his golden oh, touch. Oh, yeah! I mean, I was a kid first when I heard of this, you know, mythos. So now as an adult, yes, of course I've read this. But as a six-year-old, I was like, fuck yeah, everything's golden here. Um, <laughs> but golden. King Midas is cured of his golden touch eventually when Dionysus points him in the direction of a river that'll heal him. And really, moreover, Midas gets known for his poor judgment and music taste between Apollo and Pan. Uh, he chooses Apollo. Pan, of course, thanks him by giving him donkey ears. And my favorite part of this mythos is that when these donkey ears are revealed by his barber to everyone, everyone starts chanting, Midas has ass ears! Midas has ass ears! Which I'm like, oh, Lord Tywin doesn't shit gold. So similar, similar thought, similar thought. But also, Midas has ass ears. Midas has ass ears. <laughs> Midas has ass ears. It's got a ring. It does have a ring to it. You know, Eliana, you said something in our Eddard 3 and Eddard 7 episodes, if you can even believe Lamau. it. Yeah, Lamau. Very funny. Very freaking funny. If you can believe it, you spoke about Achilles and it made me think a lot more about Achilles in this chapter, especially here with what Jamie is thinking and feeling. And to sum up what you had said, you told the story of how Achilles' mother, Thetis, renders him immortal by dipping him in river sticks, holding him by the foot, which makes that his weak spot, the only spot that is not immortal. He gets hit in the foot by an arrow and dies. You referred to Cersei's weak spot or Cersei's ankle and Jamie holding it being the weak spot between them. To expand, Achilles is actually kind of a really good Jamie parallel in many ways. Known for his war exploits, his speed, and his strength in combat. And there's a really good scene in the Iliad where Hephaestus creates an intricate shield displaying the moments of human life that Achilles is going to miss out on if he returns to battle. And that it fates him to die at a gloriously 
young age. With this set of arms, he wrecks the Trojan army and savagely slays the Trojan hero Hector in single combat at the end of the war. I've seen some people liken kind of some of the stuff going on here with Helen and Hector uh, to Rhaegar Robert Lyanna in this little love triangle, but I, I think exploring this golden theme for Achilles is really important because the shield that he had made for him is symbolic of the relationship with his mother, his divine parentage, his connection with the gods, and also that his mother specifically had connection with gods. In a way, we can liken this to the idea of like Valyrian steel swords with Hephaestus being the god of masonry, but the gold for Achilles symbolizes kind of Jamie's journey in a way, and that he will never again be able to experience ordinary human life, much like Achilles. Achilles chooses the glory of this young death in battle. And even now, Jamie sits astride the crimson horse and the white horse with his golden hand. Do you choose glory, Jamie Lannister, or do you choose honor? Which is it? Which horse will he take? A horse, of course. <laughs> a horse, of course. I hate myself. You know, which tier? Which tier are you, Jamie? But yeah, I, I think that's a really great comparison. I haven't thought of Jamie much in the context of Achilles or anything that has to do with the Iliad, which is really interesting considering that it's so it maps so well in a lot of ways to the rebellion and and other than you know talking about uh the the birth of Circe and Jamie but yeah i don't know if he'll choose glory or honor maybe we'll find that like many other things right they're not so different and we might see how they wrap together in Jamie's story right if love and hate can mate can glory and honor doesn't be one. rhyme yeah, be one. It doesn't rhyme as well. I was trying to think of something no, cute no. like love and hate and commate, but you know, I'm not a poet. Neither are all the people who are admiring Jamie's hand at dinner until he knocks over a goblet of wine. And then he lets his temper take over for a second. He bitches out Flemont Brax, telling him if he loves Jamie's hand so much, why don't you just fucking marry it? Here, take it. <laughs> That's all I thought when I heard that chapter. I was like, oh my god, Jamie. <laughs> Uh, people do say make those jokes about people's hands in general, but anyways, after they avoid all this hand talk, we have <laughs> Lady Ermesand. She's all of a year old. Tyrick Lannister's toddler wife, in quotes, uh, who's trotted out for the court's approval. She's wearing a gown of cloth of gold with the Hayford sigil and jade beads, and she cries because, you know, she's like a baby, and they're like, we gotta put her to bed. Uh, the Kathleen and Jamie discuss... Now, 14-year-old Ty Wreck. Love saying, get Ty Wrecked, Lannister. Um, <laughs> he's been missing since the King's Landing fights in Clash when Jamie was a prisoner in River Run. So he missed all of that uh, excitement. Adam Marbrin offers that, you know, I actually led a search party looking for him at Tywin's command, but unfortunately we found nothing. We found his palfrey, but not his body. Most like they pulled him down and slew him. But if that's so, where's his body? The mob let the other corpses lie. Why not his? Why not his? Strongor agrees. He's like, yeah, he's worth much more alive. He's a Lannister. And Marbrand is also in agreement. But no ransom had been made. Who is taking care of the money for Tywin? I don't know. Who is I was just thinking about that. I'm sorry. Uh, Kevin, probably. Well, not anymore. Uh, Jamie, who's three cups of wine in, says the boy is dead. They likely killed him when they realized who he was and threw him in the river to avoid Tywin's wrath. 
Tywin always paid his debts. I love this language of how Jamie's hand seems heavier and clumsier as he gets drunker. That's something that's called out. But also, a thought. Just gonna put it out there and then let it go. Had this been alongside A Dance with Dragons chapters, but Jamie's golden hand, donning it, and uh, Danny's floppy ears. Mmm. Okay, I like that a lot, and there are a couple other parallels here we'll talk about in a second for Danny yeah. that I think as we move forward, we're definitely going to see more happening because uh, Jamie's being forced into leadership. And it's funny you say it reminds you of Danny because in a way, how that language of his hand is heavier mm. as he gets drunker, it reminds me of John drunk in his first chapter. Oh. Yeah. Funny. And being like, you know what? I... I will make big life decisions uh, uh, drunkenly, like subscribing to a Patreon or pledging my life to the Night's Watch. Hey, I mean, Jamie understands that. He was drunk on glory. That's true. And his sister's pussy. I was going to say aunt pussy, but <laughs> I didn't. Strongmore uh, agrees with me. The conversation's over. Just kidding. He agreed that the conversation was over regarding Tyrak, etc., uh, but later, Jamie's alone in the tower room and kind of thinks more about Tyrek because Tyrek was kind of prominent. He served as squire to King Robert with Lancel. Lancel. Knowledge could be more valuable than gold, more deadly than a dagger. It was Varys, he thought of then, smiling and smelling of lavender. The eunuch had agents and informers all over the city. It would have been a simple matter for him to arrange to have Tyrek snatched during the confusion, provided he knew beforehand the mob was like to riot. And Varys knew all, or so he would have us believe. Yet he gave Cersei no warning of that riot, nor did he ride down to the ships to see Marcella off. I'm going to be real. This passage right here, that's all the proof I need to believe that Tyrek is, like, whisked away by Varys. I don't need more than that. That that feels right. I mean, that theory... Is something that's passed around the fandom, obviously, because it's literally presented right here as a theory that Jamie goes, huh. And again, I think Jamie is right about a lot of things in A Feast for Crows that are going to translate to The Winds of Winter. I mean, even here, the Dornish are coming to King's Landing. Dornish are in talks of hooking up with Aegon Blackfire's campaign. Let's just call it what it is. You know what I mean? Aegon Blackfire. Uh, Varys and Illyrio are plotting out Young Griff's campaign. Cersei is going to have to deal with the Dornish, who are in leagues with Illyrio and Varys, who have been the puppet masters for ages. And then A Dance with Dragons ends with Varys revealing to us, yes, I've been puppeteering this city for so long. Jamie was right. Again. Yeah. I mean, he, he notices things. And he's not, he's not only a pretty face and a good hand. One good hand. And... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, it wasn't nice. No good hands. I should really reach out to him sometime, give him a hand, but... <sighs> yeah, I just feel like with the Edric Storm going into lease, right, with Eastermont, that feels also shady. Really just feels like Varys is, as I've mentioned before, I'm very on to that theory that Varys is totally just stealing side airs. Just in case. Just yeah. in case. Varies on to that theory. 
Chloe's gonna ignore my joke. Yep. While Jamie surveys out a shuttered window. And now that it's late enough, he finds Sir Illyn to train with him. His hold on the shield is loose with his golden hand, and he takes his blunted tourney sword, telling Illyn that, you know, we were both once knights, and let's see what we become. Payne, after 15 years of just sort of, like, beheading people and living in... Depression. Where he, yeah, in, in depression and where he has been is very rusted as a, his own ringmail. But he meets each of Jamie's attacks. They dance under the horned moon to their steely dance song. Uh, Illyn hits him several times, though Jamie notes he's not as strong as Brienne. And by the end, Jamie's bruised, battered, and exhausted enough to worry about it later with wine. He tells Illyn, you know what, we're going to play every day until he's as good with his left as he once was with his right. Illyn makes a clacking noise. Haunts me. <laughs> yeah, Jamie realizes he's laughing at his remark. I kind of like the clacking noise idea. Of course you do, because you stan Illyn Bane, whatever that I think, means. I think I also just like weird things. I'm like, yeah, of course the bear eats the person. Yeah, of course. That's wholesome, right? You know what, Eliana? Honestly, I'm a little disappointed in you because Illyn Payne ethically kills people and if you're gonna stand that for your morals, that's very on you. Okay? Yeah, no, I mean like his job is terrible, but also just like mm, interesting. Cancelled. I feel bad. I feel bad for him. <laughs> Jamie is he's my He's my Sandra Clegane, okay? <laughs> Chloe? There is... I don't... Fuck you. Uh, is it not? Is it not? I made is a comparison about them already doesn't mean you can use it against me. Anyways. Is it not? Am I wrong? Am I wrong? I feel like all you do is use things against me. God. <laughs> <sighs> so, Jamie's really bruised up the next day. No one says anything about it, but he knows they look. When they get back to the camp, little Lou Piper is the only one brave enough to ask Jamie about it. <laughs> I'm really excited to talk about uh, Lou Piper. You all might recognize the name, of course, because of House Piper. And there are actually, like I said, a couple Danny parallels for Jamie here moving forward. Lou is the brother of hot-headed Mark Piper, best friend to Edmure Tully, captive at the twins post-Red Wedding. So we will definitely get there to see that. But Jamie tells little Lou Piper... The wenches in House Hayford gave him these love bites, and boy, are they lusty wenches. Jamie only likes lusty wenches. Just kidding, it's maidens. Yeah, I was just like, interesting. What's the truth, I love Jamie? that people believe this about Jamie. Yeah, right? Like, okay, we all know the only girl you fuck is your sister. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the days turn from blustery to cloudy to rainy, but the column moves along north on the King's Road. Jamie ends up finding more love bites every single morning because he's dancing with the lusty wenches each night. And by lusty wenches, we mean Ellen Payne. A stable, a stone barn on an island, an open field, in the rain, out of the rain. It made no matter because they did it every night. He makes excuses for what he does at night, although he's sure Adam and his other captains probably suspect it. That he's in love with Illyn Payne. No, I'm just kidding. But he chose Illyn for a reason. And now no one will learn Jamie's garbage at swords. Thank the gods. Yeah. There's actually something that I feel is kind of a either a great callback or continuity in terms of some of the metaphors that George is using in this book. That Jamie calls these practices dancing. Earlier on a bit, he says to Illyn, we will dance again, he promised Sir Illyn on the morrow, and the morrow, every day we'll dance, till I am as good with my left hand as ever I was with the right. And it reminds me very much of the secret 
dancing lessons or practices that Arya was having when she was studying water dancing mm. under Sirio. It's the same language. But there's obviously something of a joke in here as well. Like, obviously, one layer of it is, yes, Jamie's not actually fucking getting love bites. And there isn't actually an explicit sexual tension between Jamie and Illin, I think. I think. Um, mm. I, I'm sure that fanfic exists. I was just going to say, I'm like, Eliana, is this your new thing? Because I feel like it should be. It's they can't not, tongue kiss. So. It, it, it doesn't have the same... Um, they passed the bench del test. I guess. It doesn't have the same appeal to me as, like, Gren and Pip. Like, this one, okay. I'm like, I don't know. It, it's, like, something I'm sure exists somewhere. But anyway, it's not for me. Um, I'm reminded of our analysis, though, of Brienne and Jamie's fight. Uh, that... Yes. Their fight was basically a sex scene. It had a lot of that same language and charge tension. And after all, like t- towards the beginning of this, right when Jamie and Ilan start dancing, uh, Jamie does compare Ilan to Brienne. He's like, Brienne's better. It, anyways, um, and all this time, right? Brienne again is thinking of Jamie, dreaming of him as her idea of honor is getting wrapped up with him and. To tie all of this back also to his relationship with Cersei and Jamie's previous views on fucking and fighting, I think there's something to be said for also this language around sex in his chapters being tied to fighting, maybe even uh, very wrapped up in these emotions of hate and fear. Yeah, and something you just said actually clicked with me that this whole time, Brienne, he thought the whole time, you know, oh... Cersei, Cersei, I have to get back to Cersei. It's all about Cersei. But now that he's with Cersei, he's disgusted. And it's all about Brienne. Yeah, because he's emotionally cheating. On Brienne, yeah. I mean, Cersei's actually cheating, but I I don't think anyone's cheating because they haven't actually defined the relationship. Again. All of them are cheating on each other with other things. Wow. (laughs) Amazing. (sighs) They Oh, go ahead. They creep further into the riverlands where the signs of war have become much more obvious there's weeds thorny brushy trees <laughs> wolves prowling dusk till dawn they even kill one of uh marbrin's horses there's a hilarious wording here that goes into jamie's practice soon the signs of war could be seen on every hand hmm. weeds and thorns and bushy trees grew up so high and blah 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 whatever imagery <laughs> <sighs> No beast would be so bold, declared Sir Bonnet for the good of the stern, sad face. Aw. These are demons in the skins of wolves sent to chastise us for our sins. This must have been an uncommonly sinful horse, Jamie said, standing over what <laughs> remained of the poor animal. I never noticed that uh, Sir Bonifer's face is stern and sad right there, Aww. which we'll talk about, I'm sure, soon. <sighs> I'd like the commentary, though, that there are bad wolves or men of the wolves out there, right? That kind of uh, implies that double entendre. But at the same time, of course the wolf is going to eat the horse. It's trying to survive in the midst of a war. Also, literally, of course the wolf will eat a horse just in general. Yeah, it's hungry, bitch. You guys literally eat the horse after this. That's the other thing. Like, they literally have the horse cut apart, salted, in case they need the meat as they go. And they stop at this inn... The Sow's Horn, where they find an older knight, Roger Hogg, squatting in his tower house with six men at arms, four crossbow men, and a score of peasants. Kenos wonders if he's a long lost Craig Hall, as Roger resembles the brindled boar. 
and Strombor wastes an hour genuinely questioning Roger Hogg about this. <laughs> but Roger has more interesting things to say about wolves, and not furry ones, but rather furries. The Karstarks, the White Star Wolves. <laughs> Turns out they came looking for J.B. Lannister, but Hogg and his men put them in their grave. And before that, Amory Lorch had led lions to his keep, although Jamie Collins at Tywin had told him to harry the Riverlands. But Hogg's fealty isn't to the Riverlands, it's to House Hayford. And Ermisand, the baby, bends to the throne. But that doesn't stop Lorch, right? Like, he just slaughters half a Hogg's sheep, his three milk goats, and he tries to roast him in his tower, and then he's like, ah, this is boring. And he leaves, and that- and- Hog's like, okay, cool, great. Well, we got thick walls, so eventually though the fire goes out. Uh the four-legged wolves though eventually come. Not not like the metaphorical Stark people. Literally wolves. And they eat the rest of his sheep, so that actually really sucks. He asks Jamie what they should do, and Jamie says, Plant and pray for one last harvest. I have some mixed emotions here, so let's just chat it out. Let's just get it going. Um so Part of me is kind of annoyed because that's like their whole livelihood, right? Like everything that they lost, that's their livelihood. That's their sustainability. The milk uh, of the goats and the sheep's fur he can sell, but the whole sheep eventually he could have butchered to feed the family for a while. Or keep shearing it and selling it. Exactly. I mean, that was their everything. Jamie couldn't throw him a couple gold coins because that could really change things. I mean, uh, I don't know, you stingy fuck. And no, at the same time, it's wartime. Gold coins aren't going to do much good when you're hiding out in your tower house. I get that, okay? But it just sucks because Jamie looked away from Amory Lorch here because he couldn't. I mean, obviously, A, Amory Lorch is dead. B, Jamie couldn't uh, come for Amory Lorch and try to give justice to this rightfully he can't do that as a kingsguard member right now and he also can't himself can't look down on his family name right like he still cannot separate himself from being jamie lannister and Mm -hmm. when you see roger hogg is taking care of his meager amount of small folk in this tower it's kind of similar to edmure right my people they were brave taking his small folk in but pride did motivate that a little bit just putting that out there I don't know. The other thought I have is that while Jamie can't publicly condemn his father's man, this almost reminds me of some of the conflict for Ned in King's Landing that we'll get into in a second. Interesting. Um, I'm excited to get to those thoughts. But yeah, like he could have given them that or maybe found another sheep. It would be kind of hard, but provided them another means of provision. But... I think another difficulty is, like, what, if he gives them a gold coin, who else does he have to give as they go through the rest of the battered riverlands? And I, the Lannisters obviously have a lot. They they could give some to everyone. Yeah, I mean, I was, like, sitting here and you're like, what will everyone else want? And I'm like, a gold coin? Yeah, I mean, they could all do they it. They have mines, Eliana. They do. But that's the thing is he sent Brienne off with a bag of gold to get whatever she wants in the king's name to accomplish finding Sansa Stark. So as he comes to this place, and especially as he gets to Harrenhal and sees people like Pia, etc., that a couple gold coins could probably change their lives. It's like, yeah, no, when's I the agree. last time you had to use it, Jamie? Probably never, because as we also saw, right, like way back then in Sansa's chapters with Joffrey, 
Turns out when you're rich, people also just give you things. Joffrey's like, hello, random cottage. I'm the prince. (laughs) Feed me. Give me wine. Whatever. So, yeah, absolutely. They, though, cross the stream the next day between King's Landing's sworn lands and Riverend's the blackened land they ride upon was once held by the brothers Wode, according to Maester Julian, and no small folk or Wodes appeared, though. They only find outlaws camping out in the root cellar. One is wearing a crimson cloak. Jamie actually hangs him uh, along with the other outlaws, and he calls that justice. He thinks this was justice. Make a habit of it, Lannister. One day men might call you Golden Hand after all. Golden Hand the Just. Is that the name you really want for yourself, Jamie? Golden Hand? Hmm. It's like a bad, uh, what? It's like a bad, uh, Bond or Austin Powers, depending on how you're feeling that day, villain. And to be fair, it's better than, uh, Kingslayer. You know, Hmm. I mean, I'd probably take that, I guess, but... Kingslayer's kind of cool. The hanging is so prominent in A Feast for Crows throughout Mm -hmm. his plot and Brienne's. It definitely reminds me of Stoneheart. But I want to come back to the idea of Ned serving justice in King's Landing and him sending Beric Dondarrion and company out to deal with the mountain. This kind of feels like a similar journey to Eddard Eleven. Eddard sends out Lord Beric Dondarrion with the charge of Thoros of Mir, Sir Gladden Wilde, and Lord Lothar Mallory. He specifically does not take Ilum Payne or Loris. People think it's overreaching. Right, that a man of his position, the hand of the king, can't technically be exacting justice. He's not the king, and he has to be careful with how he approaches exacting this justice, as his good family, quote unquote, is basically on the throne, Robert, the Baratheons, and uh, the Lannisters are very involved in what's going on in the Riverlands. And vice versa, if Ned doesn't commit this justice, who will? No true knights amongst him, right? Etc. Now, Jamie, when you flip over, he takes Marbrand, Stefan Swift, and his baggage train, Benefer the Good and the Holy Hundred, Sarsfield and his archers, Maester Julian and the Ravens, and Flemet Brax and the horses. He specifically takes Illin Payne, which is a change from Ned, because as Varys told Ned, saying no to Illin Payne going is an insult. And he specifically leaves Loras in charge, which Ned also leaves Loras specifically. People might think Jamie's actions, reacting to Amory Lorch's misdeeds, might be overreaching, right? It's that same split loyalty that if he acts publicly about those misdeeds, it shames the Lannisters and says that he does not condone their actions. But this also feeds for that split identity of who Jamie is as a Lannister and also as a Kingsguard and also as himself. Yeah, and you can see a lot of uh, Jamie. Like Ned, right? He got a lot of that training and. Uh... To an extent, he he knows what political pageantry looks like and how to do it. Mm-hmm. The dreary gray weather frames the trip into Harrenhal. He wonders if Brienne went this way, if she went to look for Sansa in her mother's ancestral home. Mm. Had they encountered other travelers, he might have stopped to ask if any of them had chance to see a pretty maid with auburn hair or a big ugly one with a face that would curdle milk. But there was no one on the roads but wolves, and their howling held no answers. He should have tried asking the wolves, honestly. I think so. I mean, I, mean, I hear Nymeria is very full with Micah, so. Maybe. Which, again, I'm like, yeah, that's wholesome, right? 
I'm just saying, it's a very wholesome theory. If, uh, yes, Sandor cut up Micah and all, but, like, That's and he delivered him to the part. butcher, but what if, like, the butcher put it out in the trash and then Nymeria found him and ate him? Anyways, we're getting off Another topic. Another one. Anyways, a lot of this language, though, and imagery from Jamie's chapters, it does feel very similar, right, to Brienne's foray as she goes through the Riverlands. So it's a lot of the same idea. And it, it, in a way, it's kind of like suddenly they're traveling together through it again, kind of. Uh, I mean, they literally intersect and their chapters later, we'll get there sometime. We've all been waiting for the aftermath to that encounter mm-hmm. for years. It's fine. Years. It's fine. Littlefinger might be the Lord of Harrenhal, but he's far too busy to take the greatest castle in the country and do some work on it. So Jamie is left to sort out River Run. And seriously, Gregor left the place a mess in ruins, and it turns out the mummers don't really clean up after themselves either. After passing through the dim murder holes, he finally reaches the very courtyard he last gave his farewells to the bloody mummers in the last book. The mountain's men come out, and one significant man, Shitmouth, a very grizzled gray man, says, Fuck me! Jamie Lannister! The bleeding Kingslayer, boys! Fuck me with a spear! Iconic. I just love the inflection and enthusiasm you brought to that line. Not a, I mean, that line might be iconic, but you really raised it. You Thank elevated you. it. I don't even know if that's my favorite shit mouth. It wasn't very grizzled. I'll work on it for the future all. That's fine. I loved it. Jamie asks, who is the command? But shit mouth is laughing too hard until Jamie really offers to fuck him with a spear and asks, who the fuck was commanding? Another man answers that Polliver was in command, but the hound had killed him. Jamie asks if he had seen Sandra himself kill the men. But the mountains man says the innkeep told them the tale. Jamie asks if they sent men after them, and they look pretty confounded about it, and they say, uh, no. And Jamie has this line of, when a dog goes mad, you cut his throat. Okay there, of mice and men. (laughs) Right, that's exactly what I thought. (laughs) Okay. And to be fair, uh, when he looks at the flowers, the mad dog is actually slayed, right? By Brienne, soon enough. Not Sandor. I don't know. I love this song. It rhymes, this whole entire story. Yeah. It rhymes, this song of ice and fire, this ice fire song. I-, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that Jamie, who knows the importance of knowing your name, so to speak, calls Sandor Sandor. I think that's so special. Like, I just think it's special. I don't know. Maybe it's silly, but the fact that he humanizes Sandor as like a fellow broken man knight and just says Sandor Clegane, Sandor Clegane. You wouldn't want to face Sandor Clegane. Yeah, and I mean, it actually was Sandor for this one, and there was good reason behind it. Right. Uh, we, we were all there. This is a reread. We all saw this it. This is different, though, because fuck Palaver and the Tickler. No, exactly. I mean, like, there was a reason behind it. We were all there. Because someone has to bring justice for the Lannister misdeeds. Mm. And then take care of the mm. child, now having an emotional breakdown. Arya, as she fucking goes off and stabs people <sighs> yes. multiple times in there. And then he has an emotional breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think that's a that's a good point, and that's part of you know Jamie being like, oh yes, broken things. I get it now. And they say they didn't really like Polliver and the Tickler though. Same, <laughs> and they say it was actually Sarah's brother. The unnamed man says that they're mad, but not mad enough to face the Hound. Jamie says they were afraid, and the man comments that they were saving him for their betters. Like, like Gregor, are you Jamie? Though Jamie thinks that uh, Sandra would make short work of him now. Yeah, he, he asks the man that's been speaking out his name, as he's gone unnamed, and he seems more competent than most of them. His name is Rafford Sweetling, 
It's Raph Sweetling. Jamie commands him to gather the garrison and captives in the Hall of a Hundred Hearts, where he once dined with Rusiusi, and asks if they can bring Vargo Hote as well. Because why, why don't you call him Hody Goaty? Oh my god, Hody Goaty. They ask him if he can bring Hody Goaty as well, because he'd like to look upon his dead, mutilated body Addy. Are you happy? <laughs> no. Yes. Oh, yes. You oh. wanted it. So now it's over. This is every What sentence. have I asked for? Uh, you did not ask for this cup to pass to you, but yeah. I did not. So look, Jamie does, at Vargo Hote's sliced off lips, ears, nose, the eyes eaten by crows, of course, because we're reading A Feast for Crows all. He asks where the rest of him is, which they respond, oh, probably rotten or uh, digested, because it turns out Sir Gregor Clegane had them feed the goat to some captives that were begging for food, and of course then fed Vargo Hope to himself. Ugh. This is not wholesome. Now, it's funny because just earlier today, Eliana, you were saying to me, like, I will always consider the cannibalism option. Well, I think it's worth considering and thinking about deeply. This is not wholesome. The Nymeria mica, wholesome. This, not wholesome. <sighs> Something else not wholesome, Jamie's interiority, where he thinks, Father, Jamie thought, your dogs have both gone mad. He found himself remembering tales he had first heard as a child at Casterly Rock, a mad lady, Lothston, who bathed in tubs of blood and presided over feasts of human flesh within these very walls. Somehow revenge had lost its savor. I can imagine. <laughs> he commands Peck to go toss the head into the lake. Kind of reminds me of Tyrion's uh, dwarf head that Aww. keeps showing up in King's Landing there. He gives Sir Bonifer Hasty command of Harrenhal in the name of the crown and tells the men that those who would stay on with Bonifer stay, but the rest uh, ride to River Run. The mountain's men begin to talk about the rewards that they're owed from Gregor, rich rewards. Bonifer tells them any man who remains will have a hide of land and receive a second when he takes a wife. But Shipmouth is like, that's bullshit, because they can go squat anywhere they want. They want gold. Jamie says they can take their grievances to his sweet sister, the queen, and asks to see the captives, basically stating that if he does not see an alive Wyless Manderly, things won't be so hot. Not so good. He sees he has no hopes of finding the companions in the dungeon. They've all abandoned Vargo by the end. Yeah, but he also finds that after seeing Hote's head and hearing about his fate and, you know, seeing what's become of Harrenhal, as it said earlier, right, Jamie's lost his taste for vengeance. And I think something that's interesting is we have Jamie's one of the few POVs at this point in the story who have had the privilege of returning to somewhere they have had been before. Brienne is another one of those. Most of the other POVs are, like, all just still scattered to the winds or dead. But in returning to the Riverlands for both Brienne and Jamie, we kind of get, again, something we brought up before, this idea of no man can step in the same river twice for he is not the same man and it is not the same river. And that's how it is, right, for both of these POVs. They found the Riverlands a little bit better than it was before, depending on whose POV you're looking through, like through, through Brienne's POVs, right? She's seeing life come back. She's seeing some of these towns rebuilt. But she's also seeing the aftermath and how people's lives are broken because of it. And Jamie's seeing the other ways in which it's a little bit worse than before. Both of them are seeing better and worse, right? For Jamie's POV, you know, we're digging in a little bit more into the politics of that outlaw part, and that's obviously going to rear its head more in Brienne's story. 
But as he finds the taste for vengeance gone after, you know, this learning experience and seeing the horror of what's happening, what I think we're seeing in Jamie is like, this is meant to show part of his growth. And he doesn't exact it now that he's returned that revenge. He's like now, you know, he's come back to Harrenhal. Now he's beautiful again, though apparently everyone still thought he was before. But he he's shaved. He's probably got a little bit of hair again on the top of his head. He's clothed in the king's guard garb, probably. Um, now he's handless, though. But he has all of that power. Harrenhal's under their control, and he's not at the mercy of Roose Bolton. It's more sad, the feelings that he has when he's coming back. Harrenhal had been really horrible last time he was here, but was so much more lively. Now Harrenhal's just this like really sad, desolate place. It's full of all of these hurting, aching people, all very much broken. Yeah. It's empty, too, right? Like, as he yes. goes back to Harrenhal, like you said, it's all died again. Only three house-went people remain there. The cook who had opened the gates for Gregor, a Picel, so to speak, a bent-back armorer named Ben Blackthumb, and pretty Pia, who, unfortunately, had suffered a broken nose and about half of her teeth are gone since Jamie last saw her, which is very sad. Very yes. sorry, Pia, because you're a good girl. When Pia sees Jamie, she falls sobbing at his oh. feet, and t- he tells her, no one's going to hurt you now, but she cries even louder. Most of the other captives have been better treated. Wyless Manderley's one of them. The other highborn Northmen taken by the mountain in the Trident are there as well. Similarly, ragged, filthy, shaggy, some have cracked teeth, missing fingers, but the prisoners are alive and worth a decent ransom. All of them are broken, exhausted, no longer defiant. Jamie tells Willis he's going to be escorted to Maidenpool to make for White Harbor, and Willis uh, collapses. He's sobbing on the floor louder and longer than Pia. Yeah, Jamie hates this castle, though. <laughs> He's like, I fucking hate this job. I fucking hate this place. Jamie, only bad memories. Um, Ike has one good memory. He sends the cook to prepare a hot meal for his men. Anything but goat. Literally, mm-hmm. figuratively. Both. He sups with Bonifer, a holy man who declares he wants none of Gregor's men. He's cutting up a pear very neatly. He says he won't have such sinners in his service. Jamie argues that Septon said that all men are sinners, and Bonifer agrees, but says some are more foul and black than others in the eyes of the seven, and Jamie caves, saying, all right, you know what, fine, fine, I'll take the men with me, and Bonifer urges him, you know, take Pia as well, and Jamie remembers the last time he had been at Hall when Kyburn had brought a much different girl, to his bed than who Pia has now become, and he learns that she made the mistake of speaking when Gregor wanted quiet, and he punched her with his chain-mailed fist. A lot of other things actually happened to Pia since then, and I think we learned about that um, at another time, but Bonifer's condemnations of Pia after all she's been through, which is super shitty, and then he calls her like a font of corruption, uh, whereas Jamie welcomes her, and, Mm -hmm. and shows compassion towards her, right? Like, it reminds me of John's treatment of Gilly and Monster. And John's doing what he can to protect them, even if they are considered abominations, Mm -hmm. uh, according to Stannis. Yeah. Jamie thinks about the atrocities Gregor would have committed if Cersei hadn't called Gregor to stand against the Red Viper, and thinks, well, I won't really miss him, which I don't really get, because it's like, how could you miss him? He's giant. 
Moving on, Jamie argues this is Pia's home. She was born in this castle, but Bonifer again calls her a fond of corruption and says she won't be tempting my men. Jamie knows Pia's likely not throwing her cat at men right now anymore and thinks he could give her a position as washerwoman. The task of having his squires and men care for his clothes felt unmanly to them. Hmm. Interesting. Have a uh, dirty clothes to own masculinity. Jamie changes the subject. He asks if Bonifer's Holy Hundred, though 86 after the Blackwater's losses, could hold the castle, and Bonifer says that, well, the warrior and the crone will guide us. And Jamie darkly thinks that, you know, the stranger could show up instead, and wonders who convinced Cersei to appoint this man as castellan of Harrenhal, and thinks that, you know, this kind of reeks of Orton Merriweather, as Hasty had actually once served... Orton's grandsire, but at the same time, Jamie wonders if Orton isn't actually correct in his choice. Like, Hasty is from the Stormlands, and he has no debts, he has no enemies in the Riverlands, which also means he has no friends in the Riverlands right now. He has no cronies, he's just sober, just, and dutiful, and his soldiers are very well disciplined. They're on tall gray geldings. Jamie weighs the army, thinking that they are neither disgraced nor they distinguish themselves in battle. And that Bonifer had once been a promising knight in his youth, but in quote, something had happened to him, a near defeat or disgrace or brush with death. And he put away his lance for good. So as this is a reread, there are some connections to be had here. And we're going to talk about Sir Bonifer Heisty and Rayella Targaryen. From A Dance with Dragons, Daenerys Six. As a girl, though, she was once smitten with a young knight from the Stormlands who wore her favorite attorney and named her Queen of Love and Beauty. A brief thing. What happened to this knight? He put away his lance the day your lady mother wed your father. Afterward, he became most pious and was heard to say that only the maiden could replace Queen Rayella in his heart. His passion was impossible, of course. A landed knight is no fit consort for a princess of royal blood. So we know from the World of Ice and Fire app and some of these connections in the story that uh, Sir Bonifer Hasty and Rayella had a little love thing going on, but it was probably found out. He had to resign. He had to go. He swore never, ever, ever again after she married her brother husband would he love, right? Like that. Uh, and we get kind of this film view of this story from both Jamie's perspective and actually also from Barristan's perspective. Barristan tells Daenerys about Rayella that the queen, your mother, was always mindful of her duty. Jamie, however, when thinking about Rayella, says that the queen's eyes have been closed for years in regarding the atrocities that Ares committed. Jamie's likely comparing Rayella as a queen to Cersei in his mind, and her autonomous nature in comparison to Cersei is much different, but both were abused and both did not have agency in their marriages outside of their family name and their husbands. How they deal with the abuse differed, quite obviously, but that doesn't mean that the queen's eyes were necessarily closed. She was powerless, much like Jamie is against Cersei burning the Tower of the Hand, for example, or basically anything else she does. So it's interesting to consider that if Jamie realized this was Rayella, was the love of Sir Bonifer Hasty's life, and he quit everything he loved because of her, well, wait, didn't someone do something similar? Didn't Jamie <laughs> sign a life sentence for the woman he loved that married some other man? 
Yeah, I mean, who would ever do something like that? But mm. maybe that's why Bonifer doesn't hold Jamie's sins against him. Yeah, well, that much. <laughs> yeah. Not the killing of Ares, maybe. Who knows? Yeah. Anyways. I imagine, um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great great point raised. I kind of forgot all that about Bonifer Hasty. So, thank you. I kind of wonder if like the whole way his 100 are portrayed... Reminds us of some of the other things we're seeing in Feast, but also does it remind me of the Unsullied, as you were talking about Danny connections, but thought throwing out, moving on. Baylor Butthole is the man Cersei chose to hold this place, apparently. Like, this is apparently what uh, Jamie calls Bonifer Hasty, uh, heralding, of course, to um, Baylor the Blessed. He... He's like, I guess this guy's gonna have to do. He warns Bonifer Hasty about the defense against the dark arts curse, <laughs> i.e., the Harrenhal curse, that befalls anyone who comes across Harrenhal. Uh, Chloe, Chloe gets credit for this joke. Um, and to be careful, I just perform. <laughs> <laughs> Chloe writes the songs, I just sing them. And to be careful, because each man who's held it, that's not true. I mean, you'll, you'll know when I write something. Because <laughs> each man who's held it has had an ill fate. Uh, Bonifer is like, not to offend you, but they're all actually super unholy, so I'll be fine. He's like, I can rely on Lancelot, Daria, Randall, and Maidenpool, and Maester Julian to assist and help destroy the outlaws and guide good folk into their villages to start living their lives again. Jamie's like, so let me know if you find the companions. And Bonifer's like, why do you want to torture them? Jamie supposes Bonifer would probably forgive them. And Bonifer says, yes, I'd embrace them as brothers and pray with them before I send them to the block. Because crime requires punishment, he says, even if you forgive the sins. So I think a lot of this comes back to what we were saying about Jamie returning and also growing uh, this visit of Harrenhal. It can, kind of makes me wonder, is he going to come back to Harrenhal another time? Like, three's, three's an important number, whatever. A lot of important things have happened to Jamie here, but it's an interesting conversation that he has here with Bonifer around forgiveness. Because earlier, Jamie thought he was administering justice and hanging those outlaws. And here there's a discussion of forgiveness and how it balances out with justice, i.e. that line of crimes require punishment. And something that's not said in this chapter or said a, lo a lot in Jamie's chapters, uh, but that's going to be, I think, very important in his storyline, is an idea that actually is very prominent in quite a few of the other POVs, that idea of mercy. Mm -hmm. And eventually it is going to come up in his storyline, right? Especially as... The chapters that we currently have of Jamie uh, and with Lady Stoneheart, aka Mother Merciless, we've been waiting for years. Jamie is here, though. <laughs> I'm tired. That if... I'm so tired. I want the book. <laughs> Can I please, George, give me the book? We're fine. It's <sighs> fine. We're here. Jamie <sighs> is here. He's thinking that uh, if Bonifer would judge the mountains men, should he not be judging Jamie's sins, which Jamie perceives as worse sins? And there's, of course, Jamie's original sin in the series, the whole, you know, fucking his twin sister, throwing a kid out the window to try to <laughs> kill him. Both acts that are kind of, I, I would argue, are one and the same because those two moments are very much wrapped into one another. Not, not every moment that he fucks his sister, just the very first one where we learn of it. And we touched on it lightly with some of those comparisons to Theon uh, in some of these earlier episodes. And maybe in some of our GOT 
recap. Ugh. Sorry. Uh, episodes from last year during, you know, uh, the, the, the final season of the original HBO hit series. Experience. Game- Experience Game of Thrones. It's not TV, it's HBO. Oh my god, it's not TV. But something I do think that uh, the show might have hinted at, though it's going to be way more complex and not like an all five minutes thing, uh, that will happen in the books is... Will Bran show mercy to Jamie, as in demonstrate that full forgiveness to Jamie without punishment, undeserved on Jamie's part. And that's something that Jamie cannot earn. It's something that he couldn't redeem himself from, right? Because that's what mercy is. And I think that's there's a part of me that as we go through Jamie's storyline, you know, he is a sinner, right? That that's that's the whole point. That's how he's perceiving himself. Um, and he's going around now trying to punish people. I kind of wonder like are we supposed to get something that's kind of like the the Paul in the Bible or something? Like wondering we're if we're going to see some of that? Yeah, after he has his encounter with Bran, experiences mercy. I don't know. A thought, but I'm interested to see if yeah, any, any it's anyone's Game of Thrones. <sighs> yeah, you know we've been waiting. <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting you say mercy because Bonifer Hasty asks Jamie what happens if they find Sandor Clegane. And Jamie thinks, pray hard and run, and says, send him to join his beloved brother, and be glad the gods made seven hells. One would never be enough to hold both the Cleganes. <laughs> so true. Clegane bull, get hype. Uh, I'm not oh hype. God. I'm not hype at all. Oh Jamie, Jamie's kind of projecting during, I don't know, most of this whole dinner thing. A, a lot of things that happened in yeah. his life. And I do think there's really something there that Bonifer Hasty is like totally a okay with having dinner with him. He's like, oh yeah, you killed the cock block, dude. A little late, but you know, can't be helped. I'm fine. I almost choked on my water. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jamie in this is trying to save Pia, which interestingly enough, there's another little girl who's been hit by men in chained male gloves, right? By men who are supposed to be knights in the story that we might know. While he battles his turmoil between honor and glory, Pia is the closest physical thing to Sansa Stark that Jamie has right now. She's a young girl who believed in knights, heroes, and believed in Jamie Lannister. He's her knight in shining armor. He sees Baylor Butthole Hasty as almost a version of what he could be and a version of what he was. Bonifer was a successful tourney knight. We've connected now that he's in love with Rhaella Targaryen, or was, who had to marry her brother-husband. And this crippled Bonifer, he swore never to throw a lance again, and now here he is, taking over this haunting, doomed castle, which is the same castle that loomed over Jamie and haunts his youth and now his adulthood. Maybe this sober, pious, disconnected man who Jamie thinks has no friends, no foes in this new land, this blank slate of bringing justice, no connections, maybe that would be nice. And to top it off, he asks Bonifer what to do to the companions, or what he would do to the companions, asking for forgiveness, right? And there's that imagery, those gray geldings all synchronized. In a way, it reminds me of the Kingsguard, but it also reminds me of Ned's gray wraiths at the Tower of Joy. Oh, interesting. Or that image of the others melting like ice in Danny's dream. Yeah, I mean, they are... Something about the synchronicity, that's all. And and I think that's part of what makes me think of the Unsullied when it comes to mm-hmm. them. Um, mm-hmm. And all of that, but also, you know, the, the lack of glory and 
them being there, and as you, as you said, the Grey Gildings, uh, it kind of makes me think of, I mean, I don't know, they're like ghosts, right? Heron Hall has always been full of ghosts, and they're just the latest iteration. Jamie does say that Beric Dondarrion is a different captive story, though. If he gets Beric, he's like, you gotta hold him for Jamie's return, because uh, his death, we're gonna parade him around King's Landing with a noose around his neck. You're too late, Jamie. Uh, and he's like, but Thoros, I don't, I don't care what you do with them, Bonifer. You can kiss him, you can kill him, you can do whatever you want with him. Bonifer's like, I will not kiss him. Um, and after some further quips, Bonifer, they part. Bonifer goes to go pray. Jamie goes to go dance some more. He passes the yard where his men are cheering Strongbore and Flemeth Brax on in a battle. Jamie already knows. He's got his bets in his head that Lyle's gonna win and trails out of the noise and light on autopilot toward the bear pit. This reminds me of John in A Dance with Dragons a lot when he doesn't go sit with his men when he passes them in the yard training and he goes to go do Lord Commander shit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. A There's a lot of that that vibe throughout Jamie and how he starts mm. to feel more disconnected from people. But he's making new connections with people. And John wasn't quite able to do that because, I, I mean, their positions are a little different. Yeah. Well, the glow of a lantern is coming from the stone seats at the bear pit because, of course, that is where Jamie goes, right? And Jamie wonders if Illyn had decided to come here as well, if it was weird fate, but it's not Illyn. It's bearded husky adorned in his griffin surcoat, Red Ron Con. Ron at I was hoping you were going to make it happen again. Red Ron Con. I was like, please don't. I will commit. always say Red Ron Con for you. Commit, now. commit. It's so fun, too. Say it. Red Ron Con. I know. I was like, <laughs> she's got to. We're making it happen. So the bear's remains still decorate the pit, although only bones and ragged fur can be seen. Jamie kind of feels it. pity for the bear, you know? At least he died in battle, though. I feel bad for the bear. I felt bad for the bear the moment it died. I was like, damn, that bear was scared. It's I felt like- bad in general. Like, you shouldn't yeah. have a bear. I just don't I think you should have one. I don't think that Vargo Hope was responsible. I don't think anyone at Heron Hall is responsible enough to have a bear. Also true. Also true. No one. Most people. I'm most not. Most people in general. Jamie asked if Sir Ronnet lost his way, but Red Roncon wanted to see where the bear and the maiden not so fair, he says, had danced. Jamie smells the wine on his breath and Ronit goes on, asking if it's true that Brienne fought naked. I Jamie, wish. of course, I know, right? I was thinking, I was like, Jamie wishes. So is Ronit. Jamie, of course, corrects him. He's like, no, it was a pink silk gown because if she was naked, I would have known. Uh, <laughs> Ronit says that otherwise, the sight of Brienne may make the bear flee in terror. And we get this line. And this line, I just, I want some context here this line is the biggest you fucked up moment you like lady stoneheart who no one cares this is this is this is fierce get ready are you ready yeah connington like read the room read the room connington read the bear pit god damn it the line is connington laughed jamie did not Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Jamie's like, interesting that you know my girlfriend, huh? And <laughs> Red Ron Con's like, actually, I was engaged to her once. And Jamie's super surprised. He's like, she's never she's never said she was engaged to you. Oh, whoa. Jamie- yeah, Jamie, you've had other boyfriends? <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were a virgin. You were engaged before? <sighs> Connington explains he was the second betrothal of Brienne's three. He had told Jamie's like, she had three? 
<laughs> you had three boyfriends, Brienne? He had told his father the wench was ugly. And his father had said all women are the same when you blow out the candle. That's not true. Jamie eyes Red Roncon's surcoat, remembering Red Roncon's dad, who's the late Han's brother, but Ronnie corrects him that uh, he was John Connington's cousin. And then Jamie's like, ah, yes, John Connington. Interesting. Rhaegar's friend raised a handship to correct Meriwether's failures during Robert's rebellion and in Rhaegar's absence. Then he was stripped of his honor, lands wealth, packed off in exile to die, and allegedly drank himself to death. <laughs> allegedly. Allegedly. But Red Roncon's dad, the cousin, had joined the rebellion in the late stages and been rewarded with only Griffin's Roost after the battle. He had given most of the Connington lands to his more leal supporters and kept the gold. So Storm was published in 2000, and the earliest mention of John Connington is technically in Storm. In Danny 1, Barrison tells her about Rhaegar's friends, young Lord Connington's included. In Arya 5, the story of Stony Sept is told to her. And in Jamie 8, we hear about him when he's in Barristan's entry in the White Book. In Feast, we get this fleshed out a bit more. Red Ronnet existed in Clash. His first mention in Catalan's Clash journey, actually, at Renly's tourney happens. And then we see him later in Sansa 7 at court. It does feel like George kind of had ideas for the Griffs and how they were going to be included, right? He just needed a way to use them. It's likely the scraps of baby Aegon being unrecognizable after death that, like, got spawned into some sprouty plant. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Not a lot as far as interviews and stuff that he's talked about with it, though. Ronit was no more than a landed knight, and apparently Brienne would have been a sweet plum. Excuse me? Yeah, she's... I mean, I, I do like plums. I'm not trying to... I mean, trade. yeah, but not for Red Ronit. No, not for Red Ronit. Definitely not. Jamie asks why the marriage didn't work out, and he answers that he had to merely see her. Excuse me? We have this line, and it closes out the chapter. When I went to Tarth and saw her, I had six years on her, yet the wench could look me in the eye. She was a sow and silk, though <laughs> most sows have bigger deeds. When she tried to talk, she almost choked on her own tongue. I gave her a rose and told her it was all that she would ever have for me. Connington glanced into the pit. The bear was less hairy than that freak. I'll- Jamie's golden hand cracked him across the mouth so hard the other night went stumbling down the steps. His lantern fell and smashed, and the oil spread out, burning. You are speaking of a highborn lady, sir. Call her by your name. Call her Brienne. Connington edged away from the spreading flames on his hands and knees. Brienne, if it please my lord- he spat a glob of blood at Jamie's foot. Pfft. Brienne, the beauty. A, it does please your lord. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for referring to her by her proper name, Brienne, the beauty. Uh, second of all, Red Roncon. It's only okay when Jamie calls her a wench. You know what I mean? Like, that's foreplay for them. You don't get to just call her a wench. He's all like wench and she's all like Kingslayer. You meet her once. And you think you could just call her a wench? Get the fuck out. Get out. Yeah. Get out. They traveled Garbage. across the entire Riverlands to get to that point where they were like, yeah, this is nice now. <laughs> but I, I do think, interestingly, we get that answer here of where Brienne's victory 
where she got the force to eke out that victory when she faced Loris. It, as everyone remembers, that was a very intense scene. She, like, tackles him on the ground. Uh, Brienne's chapter before this one actually speaks of how when she saw the roses on Loris's shield, she was very angered because she hates roses. <laughs> and here we find out why. It's because uh, assholes like Red Roncon. And that's another way, right, that their stories are slowly coming together physically. They stay intertwined emotionally. And Jamie uh, was something of the night, right, rescuing that maiden, Brienne the Beauty, here in the bear pit. Here he is again, defending her honor. And we have Jamie kind of keeping his calm, right, throughout the rest of this chapter. It's a very mellow chapter in many ways. Revisiting Karen Hall, very somber. It's a place of trauma for him, and he's wrestling with this lack of anger, as he comes to this place, it's actually ongoing throughout Jamie's storyline, right? We see it earlier on in Feast. He's like, I should be angry right now. I, we see it in Storm. He's like, I should be angry for all these things that are really sad that should be, that are very traumatic for him. The death of his father, kind of his son. And Jamie's trying to parse out what does it mean? What do these feelings or lack of anger mean? But the anger comes out here, right? When it's regarding Brienne. Uh, because of love, he feels anger towards Cersei also as well. So um, it's interesting how that manifests for Jamie. Yeah, it's a very complicated and toxic relationship, as I know we've just been like drilling like a broken record home. But it, it is a very new feeling. And Jamie sits at this precipice, kind of like we talked about last episode with Kristen Cole, of sitting on this edge of change about to occur. And he can be the factor that changes it all, right? He could be the queen maker. His help for Cersei, as we know, would be phenomenal for her right now uh, at where we are in the books, right? I know Dance with Dragons, she needs him. Obviously, we know this from her letter where she says, I need you. And he, him throwing this in the fire in Feast is like, that's so bomb, as we're going to get to, but it's the final choice and it takes chapters and chapters and chapters to break this toxic learned behavior that Jamie has lived through this abuse and made adjustments to his life and also abused back and made adjustments in his life to displace emotions, to not deal with them, to have all these different mechanisms set up so he just doesn't have to actually feel things. And here he is finally feeling yeah, because he can't just react in anger as he usually does. And I think that's a big part of it, right? Mm -hmm. Normally, he would just be like, whatever, I'm going to just break shit, kill things, go get into fights. But now he's going to lose those fights. So now he's like, I have to sit here with my feelings. And there's something, and be sad. There's something there about how uh, by feeding, you know, Vargo Hope getting fed to himself is kind of like, sending him a message, right? Like getting his limbs cut off. And you have Jamie. Jamie was had his hand cut off to send a message to Tywin. And now Vargo Hote's getting himself chopped up to uh, send a message to Tywin as well. But now Tywin's dead. You know, it's all of these just the crows gather and they dine. Yeah. And on one hand, Jamie's like, all right, all right. But on the other hand, he's just kind of disgusted by it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that speaks a lot to the, the way that Gregor reacts to that and uh, the slow cutting off of Vargo Hote's body, the forcing of him and others to partake in this monstrosity has something similar to it, uh, to what's going on in Ramsay's torture of others. Mm -hmm. And I think we're supposed to kind of see those uh, together. And just as we, as the audience, are kind of like, oh, fuck, when we see what Ramsay's done to Theon, I think we, 
even though on one hand there's sort of what feels like a poetic justice with what happens to Fargo Hote, Jamie is showing us like, hey, whoa, that was that was a lot. Maybe that was too much, everyone. Yeah. And I think watching it kind of, it feels like slow-mo, right? Watching this feels like slow-mo. Like, when are you going to break, Jamie? When are you finally going to break? When are you going to break away? But watching all the layers of complexity that are being added, like, I really don't think that I've appreciated Sir Bonifer Hasty's plot added to mm. Jamie's until now. And Hog, right? Like, Sir Hog from Hog. earlier. That was... Yeah. That scene has a lot more to it than you think. It's it's glossing. You go past it on the King's Road just like they do. But if you stop and look, I think that says a lot that Jamie is truly struggling uh, internally with who he is, with who he wants to be. And this is his moment to change. It is. And, and it's another thing that is driving him further from Cersei. As Cersei is still hung up on this idea of vengeance, right? She gets back at her enemies. And Jamie's like, I don't know. Yeah, I do that. He's like, but I don't know. Is that still what I want in life? So. Oh, a heavy episode. Damn. It was. These feast chapters are insane, and I think they're only going to get thicker. So buckle up. Get ready to tune in with us. Next week, we will not be having an episode out for public on the 29th because we will be covering our His Dark Materials podcast series next week but we will have our patreon episode out for mirror for the free cities for patrons five and up so keep an eye out on that yes and of course we'll touch on some things that are going on in king's landing around jamie with some of the mirrorish more of in cersei's storyline but Yes, keep an eye out on that. Um, you can find stay up to date with all of that and all our episodes by following us on social media. You can find us at Girls Gone Canon, C-A-N-O-N, on Twitter, or you can shoot us an email, same as Maddie and some of our other friends, right, um, at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Hey, make sure you're subscribed to us on your nearest podcast platform. You got Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, you name it. We're on all of them. Podbean, where we're hosted. As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I've been another one of your hosts, Eliana. <sighs> we only have two hosts, Eliana. <laughs> and Thanks. an intern, Ellie. Goodbye. Goodbye.